this is Chad. Hi, and this is Maria, and this is Drinking in Public History. And today, you lucky people don't have to listen to us yammer on. We have a guest today. Kelly will be joining us. Kelly, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So I've known Kelly for several years. We won't talk about how long. (laughs) And so Kelly, what are you going to talk about today? Today, we're going to do a Pride Month episode, and we're going to talk about some little-known pre-Stonewall history. Everybody knows Stonewall, if you know anything about LGBTQ history, and it's looked at as the instigator of civil rights for LGBTQ people, but a lot led up to Stonewall, and a couple of those things happened here in San Francisco. There was the Council on Religion and the Homosexual which had an event at a place called California Hall, which we'll talk about. And then that led in, go ahead. That sounds like a gay version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. (laughs) It is not. It's (laughs) actually nothing like that, but that was a nice guess. (laughs) The other thing is Compton's Cafeteria Riots, which are becoming better known, but really not a lot of people know enough about either of these. So that's what we'll talk about. Sweet. All right. What are you drinking today, Kelly? I am drinking a version of a mimosa. There's probably a specific name for it, but it's grapefruit juice uh, with, because that's the juice I had. (laughs) Didn't have any orange juice this morning. So grapefruit and sparkling. Oh, nice. Okay. And Maria, what are you drinking? We do that. We do this every day or every day. Every day. We don't get much done other than this every day. I, I, I don't do this every day, Chad. Freudian slip. I had a friend of mine, Tangent, had a friend of mine. We were just having a conversation and she was like, I don't know how they did it like in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, when you could drink at work, she's like, how do you get productive? And I was like, I would be so much more productive if I could drink every day. I'm just saying. But hopefully my bosses aren't listening to this because I actually don't drink. Or hopefully your bosses are drink or drinking. <laughs> They're listening to this and thinking you should. Don't worry. Your bosses are too drunk to be able to tell what you do at work. It's fine. So there's that. So Maria, what are you drinking? I'm drinking. I, I got some more of the Barefoot Sparkling Rosé for Pride from last year Fun. yeah yeah i love it so i have to, i'm gonna show kelly the can because yeah yeah oh that's adorable look at that little can uh-huh. and an orange pineapple juice oh, so, yeah nice. so I, I was gonna try something a little bit more adventurous but chad was like we're drinking mimosas and i was like you know what that's really easy i should go with that yeah yeah i slept too late to do what i wanted to do which was to i have some fresh mangoes in the kitchen and i was gonna blend those with ice and make a uh, mimosa smoothie kind of thing. Oh. <laughs> and then I was like uh, I'd rather sleep yeah <laughs> yeah so so you, you add chili or you add chile with that and you get a mangonada which oh, is that really popular here in Texas yeah yeah but that sounds amazing yeah I'm just drinking a regular mimosa <clears throat> nothing wrong with that um or otherwise known as prosecco and some orange juice it's pretty much it no shame no shame it's, it's a classic yeah. for a reason I was gonna yeah. say the gay classic it right now and mm-hmm. i'm ready to hear some lgbtq history lay it on us Kelly. sure okay so 
everybody knows for the most part, at least if you know anything about LGBTQ history, about Stonewall in 1969. To set the stage though, as far as just what's happening in public beforehand, to give you some ideas of why these things needed to happen. You have back in the 40s, all of the Kinsey reports coming out that talks about sexuality as a spectrum and that you have very few people who are totally heterosexual and very few people who are absolutely asexual and everything in the middle, you have some attraction somewhere to both or all of the genders. And so after that, you have in the 50s, the McCarthy hearings, where it really starts to bring to light the idea that, sorry, let me press with that, preface that. Yes, I've been drinking already. Gaming so, is fine. Yeah. <laughs> previous episodes, you would definitely hear me say some- Oh, I heard. <laughs> wretched things. <laughs> LGBTQ people were sidelined, of course, throughout history. And if you lived in a very small town, then you probably didn't know anybody else who had any sort of similar feelings to you. The world wars come along and people start moving from small towns into- into the army or into larger towns to help with the war efforts and especially in world war ii so you get a lot of people who are in like extremely same-sex environments for long periods of time and so they start recognizing that yeah i know party jet so they start recognizing that hey there are other people out there who have similar feelings than i to me and so when the wars end, you have a lot of gay people who end up staying in these port towns. So that's why you have these big populations in San Francisco and LA and New York of LGBTQ people, because they're not going back to their small towns. They want the anonymity that a city provides. They want to be able to gather with other like-minded people. So you have these large populations in these large towns. And then in the 50s, the McCarthy hearings start, and that brings like a really bad situation for gay people in the government. The feelings of the McCarthy hearings spread all, all over the country. So you have this fear of communism, you have this fear of homosexuality, you have this fear of all kinds of things that really becomes okay in that time for, I yeah. I want to say on a broader scale, because some people may know this as the Red Scare. Mm -hmm. If you know anything about LGBTQ history, though, or <clears throat> some things about LGBTQ history, you'll hear the Pink Scare, which occurred around the same time and start, like you said, it started with the commies. And if y'all are communists, I'm not making a thing. That's just how you were seen back in the time, like mm -hmm. the commies and the reds and got it. And that allowed for what you're talking about, this insertion of kind of going after the communists in government allowed to then, thank you, McCarthy, to go in and after suspected homosexuals, not just in government, because it then ended up moving into just like the Red Scare did into the film industry. The Pink Scare went into the film industry as well. Mm -hmm. So you start getting people blacklisted. Just to provide a little bit larger, if you're familiar with American history, you've probably heard of the Red Scare. And what Kelly's talking about is a small portion of that Red Scare time period called the Pink mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of government workers on the West Coast then immigrated 
or on the East Coast emigrated to the West Coast because they were pushed out of their jobs. And so they were just getting as far away as they could. And so you know, these are just some of the more major events of that time period as far as LGBTQ history in the U.S. So 69 is Stonewall. In 1959, in L.A., you had Cooper's Donuts, which was... In this already has my heart. This is the best place for anything to happen at a donut shop. So not only can you do a riot, but you can also have a donut. <laughs> right? You can be like, I need something to keep going. Throw me a right? donut. <laughs> you got fuel. You have the energy. You're going to go. Yeah. 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 And of course, it was an interaction between drag queens and cops. So it was absolutely made to happen in a donut shop. <laughs> I, I, I know that serious and also like the image of it just like how has like that not become an iconic image in LGBTQ world? <laughs> we'll talk about that because okay. essentially so much of what happens in early LGBTQ history is not recorded. And mm -hmm. it's not recorded for a variety of reasons. One of them being that the, the newspapers and the news broadcasts look at anything having to do with LGBTQ people as obscene. And so they're not going to be the people who are going to talk about it. You're not going to read about it in the papers. You're not going to see it on a broadcast because first of all, they don't want it to be there, but also they would get whatever pushback from the community for having this obscenity in their paper or on their broadcasts. And also at that point, there are just so many LGBTQ people who are just trying to survive. So they're not trying to put together a movement. Most of the people who are doing these things at this time are not trying to do it to say, hey, I'm fighting for my civil rights. They're just like, don't fuck with me tonight. I'm not in the mood. I'm just here to have a donut and a cup of coffee and tell people that I survived. Okay. That's all I'm doing. I mean, I'm sorry. Like I, like I just, right. no, I just feel like that's like story of my life. Like I'm right? here to have a donut and uh, make it to bed. That's all I'm trying to do. Get off my ass. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Like the image of that was just like, when you said it, I was like, yeah, that's like my life. Get a donut and go to bed, man. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the things, these early riots are really, for the most part, about drag queens and trans people and prostitutes. Yeah. Because these are the groups that are going to be most affected on a daily basis yeah. by police presence. It's all about police violence. It's the same thing that's been happening for decades and decades. The police are fucking with people and they're fighting back eventually. And, and the ones that get fucked with are the ones who don't have the means to not get fucked with. So the actual movement building was happening by people who weren't as affected. So you had things like the Mattachine Society, which I think started in 51, mm -hmm. I think, or somewhere around there. Earlier than that, but by a different name. There were a lot of groups, but the Mattachine Society is one of the ones that rolls into what we're talking about today. So I'm sure there were other ones that started beforehand, but those, I don't have a name offhand. It was actually 1950. 1950, okay. So you had the Mattachine Society, and then you had the Daughters of Belitis, and you had Sir, and all of these different groups that were essentially like urban professionals 
where you had your regular business people who may or may not have been in any way public about what they were doing. And at that point, like in the 50s, it was a private thing. These were private organizations that had like a list of people who were in the group, but they were not public. They weren't going around saying, give us our rights. They would hold meetings and have telephones locked in cabinets to make sure that there weren't any listening devices anywhere that anybody could hear about what was going on. They would tell people to show up to meetings at staggered times so that people in the neighborhood wouldn't realize that people were really gathering, that it was a specific meeting. They wouldn't tell people the name of the host of that meeting, except the first name, but you wouldn't know who was going to be leading. You wouldn't know who everybody was that was coming. So they did a lot to protect themselves. And then you had the people who just couldn't protect themselves, which were the drag queens and the and the transgender prostitutes and the gay boy prostitutes. And, and I think they would also call themselves sissy boys and all kinds of terms for essentially people that were on the edge of society. So you have those people who can't, like they just don't have the time to organize. They're too busy trying to survive. And you have cops that know where these people are gonna be hanging out because there aren't that many places that are gonna be 24 hour places that will allow them in. So transgender people were not allowed in gay bars. Drag queens most of the time were not allowed in gay bars. So you have your LGB people who can gather in those places, but your T people are still pushed to the side. And so the places where they could gather were places like 24-hour donut shops, 24-hour cafeterias and diners and places like that. So the cops know where to go. They know where they're going to see these people. And they have a lot of different ways to trump up charges to be able to harass them. Yep. So, And of course, they know where the donut shop is. Of course to- they know. How could you <laughs> not? Please, everybody knows where the donut shop is. Cops and donuts. Of course. Uh, so now this is across every so is the Mattachine Society and these other societies that you talked about are they specifically west coast are they across the United States do you know this is this I don't know if they started on the west coast the Daughters of Belitis was started by Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon the Mattachine Society I believe was Harry Hay and but they did go national didn't he recently pass away Harry Hay that I don't know by recently 20 years ago okay (laughs) <laughs> for some of us that's like yesterday <laughs> anyway um keep going keep going so yeah the cops knew where they could find trans people that night and so they went to the donut shop and of course started harassing somebody and that person was all this is not happening through coffee in the cop's face and and then a riot breaks out and so it's if i remember correctly that's a one night thing and it just happens and then it's over and then, and then people just go about their lives. And of course the cops continue harassing. This isn't the last night that they ever harassed them, but, but that night riot. In this riot? They were successful that night. Yeah. But obviously, they, most likely the cops came back because. It's of not course. Right. Yeah. Because they're not going to stop harassing them. They're still doing what they're doing. But, but that was like the first riot that we're aware of that there's still knowledge of in the U.S. by transgender people against the cops. It's that one was of the- in 1959. Yes. Wow. I didn't, I, I actually did not know that. 
it's and like I said, there's no reason for anybody to know it because that history is dis is specifically disappeared. There is nothing that anybody knew about it except for the people that were there. And a lot of times since you've got people who are on the edge of society, then you've got people who are using drugs to try to survive. They're doing a lot of drinking to try to survive. So some of the people who, like when we start talking about Comptons, some of the people who Susan Stryker, who's a transgender historian, spoke to to try and get more information on it, have no idea whether they were there. They just know that it happened because they used too many drugs and were too drunk to be able to tell you if they were there that specific night. And so much of it is lost that nobody knows what the specific night was. They just know it was August. (laughs) So it's, there's these things that make recording this history very difficult. You have to have a lot of people who can speak about it in order to have any idea of what happened. And then you have to piece together. Yeah, you have to piece together all of these things to figure out which one was probably the part of it that happened because people will remember what they remember. But if enough people remember the same thing, then that probably happened. (laughs) So is Cooper's Donuts still around? I'm assuming it's not. I can't remember. I think I looked that up, but I can't remember. You want to check that? I'm working on it right now. Yeah, because some of the things still are around. There's a place called Julius's Bar in LA. Is it in LA? I think it's in LA. Yeah, where the Mattachine Society went to to make a specific point when they stopped being a private society and started doing things publicly. They went to Julius's Bar because a law came up where gay people could go into bars and congregate in bars, but they couldn't drink in them because if they got drunk, then they could start some stuff. And, and so the Mattachine Society went to Julius's bar and a bunch of people sat down at the bar and the bartender puts glasses down in front of them, asks what they want. And they say, that's interesting. We're all gay. And so the bartender then put his hand over the, the cups because then he couldn't fill them. And, and they had somebody there at that point to take a picture of it. That's where, when some of these groups actually started trying to make a point and make a movement, those things come after all of these other things where people are just doing something because they're pissed or doing something to take a stand in that moment. But the actual building is happening in other ways. So just Cooper's Donuts is no longer, I'm seeing this on, it looks like Weebly.com. Cooper's Donuts is no longer a part of Skid Row's Main Street. Yeah. So it's, it, I, my guess is it's no longer around. If there's, if there is a Cooper Donuts, it is probably not the same one. Yeah. Yeah. That would make sense. It was a long time ago. Not just a long time ago, but because <clears throat> the reason that I was asking is we still have Stonewall. Mm-hmm. Inside the of Stonewall was specifically saved. Exactly. And it's slightly different, right? Like the history around that is slightly mm-hmm. different. Whereas it sounds like Cooper Donuts is specifically for those who are marginalized in mm-hmm. mainstream society and even in LGBTQ communities today. Your sex workers, your down on their luck, quote unquote, you're down on your luck, drag queens, hustlers. All of those people who don't even fit into the LGBTQ community or that mm-hmm. the LGBTQ 
community looks down upon. It would make sense to me that this would not even be, especially if nobody could remember it. Because as you were saying, to get through the day, to get through the next hour, you're drinking or doing drugs or you're selling yourself or whatever it is that you're doing to get through the day, to get through the month. So it would make sense that this would not be something that society would deem important enough to maintain slash keep. Mm -hmm. If we're not keeping of it then of course why it maria it reminds me of the flowery wars that we talked about right wiped out by the colonizer what we know of the flowery wars doesn't actually exist it only comes from a couple people who might have been there so it sounds a lot like cooper donuts where we're not even certain that the people who know about it were actually there to tell us the history even though they were around for the history Sorry, keep on going. I'm fascinated. Yeah, so there are a bunch of different things that happened before California Hall. You had another movement in Philadelphia where there was a picket that happened in front of Independence Hall. And of course, they were trying to be the respectable LGBTQ people, but actually, sorry, only LGB, but they were trying to be all respectable and have a picket and be dressed nice and, and just circle around in front of Independence Hall with their signs saying how gay people should get a fair shake and all of that sort of thing. I'm sure. Pardon? I said with a cute little chant, right? Of course, of course. Just trying to, to do it in the way that people think it should be done where you have people who you feel like the mainstream will respect in some way. If they didn't know they were gay, they would be respectable. And they tried it that way. And of course, one of my main issues with the LGBTQ movement throughout history, throughout its history is accept me, we're like you. And that to me, it always seems to be underlying in many of the movements and many of the organizations and of course. it's, which makes sense, but I keep coming back to the civil rights movements. I keep coming back to Asian American rights and all, none of that do you really have. We're just like you. Cause obviously we don't have white skin <clears throat> or I should say they don't have white skin. Cause I am clearly white, but anyway. I was like, you're as pasty as I am. Come on. <laughs> I was like, Chad. <laughs> I know we hang out. You're a lot. not that drunk. You can't forget that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Funny story, tangent. Marie and I were talking one time. But no, I think that it's really interesting when you look at the LGBTQ movement for civil rights. A lot of what's been targeted. This was my biggest complaint. And I typically don't say this, but this was my biggest complaint when we were going for marriage equality. Marriage equality. I'm like, that's just it's it's one more thing that says, accept us. We want to be now the other, the flip side of that is I get that there's a lot of stuff that comes along with the ability to marry, right? Like, mm-hmm. and the, that, and all of the legal rights that come with that. And I'm not in any shape way or form saying that we shouldn't have those rights as well. I just felt like it was low hanging fruit and yet another area in which the LGBTQ movement was saying, we're just like you. We want these things just like you we will fit in. But I'm like, that doesn't help trans people, right? Like they need to be able to change their names. That doesn't help people filling out who are non-binary, who need to fill out legal documents and they need to identify as asex. None of that is helpful. And, And where I like, where I always stood on this is it still doesn't keep me. And if I married my husband from getting kicked out of our apartment, like, right. We're now yeah. married but we can still get kicked out. 
There are some things that the marriage rights absolutely provide and that some people were dying without, like literally dying without. And so low-hanging fruit or not, it was definitely a necessity for a lot of people. But at the same time, I totally get where you're coming from because, and this is something that I feel like, honestly, most movements go through the we're just like you phase because there is, you have the majority that has whatever rights and everybody else is trying to get those rights that have been denied it. And so in order to do that, they have to humanize themselves to the people who have those rights. Fair enough. And in order to humanize yourself, you have to show them you in them. Yeah. And um, sorry, that little ding wasn't meant to actually accentuate what I was saying. It was that I accidentally still had my slack on. So I think uh, you did a really good job, though, of saying thank hey, you. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I timed it perfectly. You know, you have to humanize yourself to the other people, but the humanization oftentimes masks the differences and that the differences are still going to be there after you've supposedly humanized yourself. And then that's where you get a lot of that, or at least some of that kickback comes in where people are like, oh, I thought you were like me, but you do this gross thing. And so all of a sudden you've yes, got- pick my nose, thank you very much. Exactly. You've got to have that honesty in what you're trying to achieve. And to say that whether you accept what I do or not, or whether you accept who I am or not, that does not make me any less of a human being. And I still deserve the same things that any other human being deserves. And that's the point, I think, where a lot of movements start to mature when they've been doing it long enough and don't feel as desperate anymore for things and start to recognize that no matter what they do, you can't build a movement on trying to force another group to accept you. You have to build a movement on saying, I deserve this, whether you accept me or not. But it takes a long time to get there. And people are so frightened along the way from all the things that are happening to them or all the things that, you know, when they see the people around them dying and they see the people around them having whatever life-threatening thing going on for whoever's doing whatever, you try what you can. And it's, I'm like you, please accept me, please. That's, yeah, it's it, when marriage equality was on the Supreme Court list of decisions, I was scared as hell because all I could think was, oh, God damn it. We've got to start all over again if this goes wrong. We've got to, we're going to move back so far because you don't just lose what's on the chopping block, but you lose all of that momentum and you lose all of that all of the things that you've done to try to get things to move forward are just wiped away. Credibility so, as well. Credibility, yeah, absolutely. You know, like you've built up some credibility to get this momentum moving. And yeah. like you said, you lose the mobility and the momentum, but then you also lose the credibility as well. If mm -hmm. I, I get it. I think I'm just a little bit more radical than what I would like to admit sometimes. And a lot of my friends will, will be, they used to, they don't anymore because I pretty much stopped that whole conversation of normal 
quote unquote normal questions of gay folk of who's the man or who's the woman. Yeah, um, that always pisses me off. I'm like, I, neither I, of us are the man. That's the point. <laughs> Exactly. Or, and this is what I've heard a lot about lesbians. How can you actually have sex? And I'm like, whoa. I feel so sorry for your wife. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> where I want to go. Is, so we need to redefine your version of sex because I feel like whoever you're having sex with isn't having fun. Right? <laughs> they're not having sex. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, they're just sitting there as the receiver and not a whole lot is happening. Oh my God. Okay. So we've done some discussion. We've talked about the Mattachine Society started by Harry Hay. Mm -hmm. I know about Harry Hay because I started doing a lot of research when I started coming out. So Mm -hmm. obviously as a gay man, I was more focused on gay history than I was on lesbian history. Mm -hmm. Sorry, lesbians. I love you all. That's normal. I wasn't looking at gay history. I was just like, oh, Del. Okay. (laughs) She's cute. Move on. (laughs) And so what was the society of? So the Council for the Religion and the Homosexual. Yeah. Let's talk about that. That just yeah. so... so So San Francisco, you've got Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, who, if you don't know anything about them, look them up. They are amazing and were instigators and activists in San Francisco when for you a say, long, long time. My apologies for That's keeping right. When you say Del Martin, is it D-E-L-E or is it D-E-L? No, D-E-L. D-E-L. Okay. Yeah. And you said Phyllis, right? Phyllis Lyon. Lyon. Is that with a Y? L-Y-O-N. Uh-huh. Perfect. And I, the only reason I did that is so that if our listeners wanted to l- look it up, they had the yeah. of everything. Yep. And they were at the time working to try to change laws in San Francisco because you have the same anti-homosexual laws as you would have anywhere else. So, and those kinds of laws are things like gay people can't gather together. I think if you have- Big orgy if it happens. Right, automatically. How could it not? Because let's carry around dildos instead of gay men. And so- Yeah, you never know what sort of crazy stuff. Yeah. (laughs) absolutely straight people suck guys you're boring yeah i'm so so sorry yeah it happens that's why we have our own groups so one of the conversations and and i think that this is something i do want to bring this up since we keep talking about some of these tropes but i think it's i think it's important to talk about these tropes because they still exist yeah absolutely Uh, and this is all part and parcel of why these riots occurred because it homosexuals in general unless you're talking about non-binary trans drag queens like that's that has its whole other set of issues but when we're usually talking about homosexuals quote unquote so your gay men your lesbian women your bisexual men or women they're over sexualized everything about them Mm -hmm. is over sexualized right so and you had the pulp novels at the time too that just dug in even further Yes, exactly. So clearly you have your women who want to be men who have sex with women and you have these men who want to be women who are receiving dick as often as they possibly can. I, when I was first started doing research in gay history, I came across some of the most outrageous numbers of how many 
partners lesbian women and gay men had in a year and i was like why don't we actually talk about that for straight people could we have a conversation how about we talk not about who they're having sex with just who they marry and how many times in a year maybe five years together can we talk about that anyway mm -hmm. That's or who they cheat on their spouses with or <laughs> exactly um, and let's not talk about their gender slash sex right mm -hmm. so no one of the so when i was in high school the reason i bring this all up because when i was in high school a quote-unquote friend of mine after i read this horrible story and repeated the story to her about two men with aids in the middle of the night one of them had died and it was full-blown aids it wasn't hiv it was full-blown aids and the guy his partner died and he was the partner that was alive was talking about his experience of that waking up and finding his partner had passed away in the middle of the night and it was devastating to me just on a yeah as a young gay guy like it was devastating but as a human being it was mm -hmm. devastating i couldn't even imagine waking up finding your partner had passed away so i was telling this to my quote-unquote friend and she says he had aids and that's god's um punishment and uh, and I, I was like, what? Like it threw me. This is not something that we'd had a conversation on. So it totally threw me. And I was pissed and defensive because I was 16 and that's what you do. <laughs> Whoa, wait. Yeah. I guess that doesn't defend why I still do it. But anyway, because <laughs> we're definitely not. 16. Habits are hard to break. <laughs> <laughs> so she, we get into this little tiff and I was like, do you, I was like, do you honestly think that gay men are the only ones who are having anal sex? Because it got to that point in our conversation mm -hmm. slash argument. And she was like, yeah, because it's disgusting. And I was like, you need to rethink your whole idea of sex because anything that two people of the same sex are doing has been done by two people of the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. Anal sex is not new to the world. No. It's not like gay men were like, oh, look, there's this new hole that no one has discovered before. Right. <laughs> In fact, I don't think I ever looked at the back of my partner. <laughs> uh, <laughs> immediately, Christopher Columbus came to mind, like. And then somebody needed to fuck him in the ass and maybe wouldn't have done all the other stuff he did. Yes. Paradise lost right there. But yeah, like it, it really was. And I think from that point on, she, I really do think that she didn't realize that people of the same sex are having or people of the opposite sex are having and doing these same things. This is not isolated. And I, it surprises me when I'm having conversations with straight people about this, when we get to this point, if we ever do, because I've learned long ago, it's time to set up boundaries. And I'm not talking about my personal life if I've known you for five seconds. So if we ever get to this point, it really does surprise me that pe I'm like, why are you even asking these questions? I would think like you must have the dullest sex life on the planet. Like, And I think that's, there are a lot of things that go into that thought of only gay people are doing this. Part of it is the idea of strict gender roles, of course. When you come into the idea of would a man who believes himself to be 100% heterosexual allow himself to be penetrated by anything and therefore because a man doesn't do that a man does the penetrating right? right to allow his wife to do something like that to him that's not going to happen and, and when you get into those kinds of concepts then yeah sex gets incredibly boring and <laughs> it just becomes this thing where it's i must insert a into b and 
ta-da, we're done. And then you think, is there even any foreplay at all happening? What is going on here? So I think like you can insert into B, but there's a whole other alphabet to explore. Of course there is. Is that, is that pun intended, Chad? The whole other <laughs> not really. Okay. It's a so, lucky side thing. <laughs> so and this is what with this my whole thing may be edited. So bringing us back to our main topic, which mm-hmm. actually wasn't sex, oddly. <laughs> Why do we keep talking about it? Right, exactly. Well, okay. Probably my mimosas. And and we're done. (laughs) Stop recording now. This was great, guys. Thanks. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So we know that the the Mattachine Society, and Mm -hmm. for listeners, I have no, I'm sure there's a reason it was called the Mattachine. I personally don't know it. I don't know either. I've tried to find that out and I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. And the society of what was the lesbian... The Daughters of Belitis, that one was started by Del and Phyllis. And so they had this society going on in San Francisco. They had a publication called The Ladder, L-A-D-E-R, like an actual ladder. And the reason that's named that actually, and Phyllis talked about it in some panel discussion, I don't remember what it was about, but they were creating this newsletter and one of her friends had painted this picture of a woman and a ladder. And she was like, okay. And that's what they named it. Seriously? <laughs> Seriously. And they put it on the cover. <laughs> that's how that started. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. She said it's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So those sorts of things, those publications, because of course, Mattachine Society had stuff like that too, were sent out across the country, but of course were sent in plain wrappers and what there was nothing on it that would make you think that it was anything of that nature that was being mailed. Everything was extremely hidden. So, but again, these societies, when we're talking about them, and I, you've mentioned this before, and I just want to be clear for our listeners that these societies were again, most likely middle-class mm-hmm. working of some sort, right? Class working people of the LGB community, but mm-hmm. not include drag queens, anybody. Yeah, that- they didn't have the money to pay for that because there was a cost associated with these things yeah, and exactly. they were just trying to survive. And so, yeah, so all of that sort of fellowship and on that level of fellowship where you could come together privately have your conversations nobody was bothering you because you had a place you could go you had a place that was private that you could go and not be interrupted had the ability to be private anymore if your neighbor three drag queens walking in right the drag queens and the transgender uh, people had to live their life in the open Mm -hmm. and and always under the threat of being abused right there was a lot of privilege that went on in being and white we're not talking about a bunch of people of color who are coming to these meetings unless somehow somebody in that meeting allowed for that but for the most part we're talking about white people when it comes to this yeah because you wouldn't have a bunch of people of color coming into your neighborhood without some without somebody noticing yeah exactly you and know? No how much you staggered that shit someone's gonna notice right and it would be more noticeable in la let's say because of the neighborhoods there than it would be in a city like San Francisco, where it's, there are definitely 
pockets for where people live, but it's far more integrated than a lot of other cities of this type. Mm -hmm. And that's just due to a lack of space. It's not due to everybody going, ooh, please move into my neighborhood. I want to live next to people from this group and that group. And no, it's because that's just how it is. So yeah, San Francisco really forces you to interact in ways that a lot of other cities don't force you to do. And you may not like the people that you're interacting with, but at least you are able to get along and get things done for the most part. There are definitely things that happen that shouldn't happen, like all the anti-Asian hate that's going on right now. That's certainly happening here. And of course, police killings and things like that, they're happening here. But for the most part, if you get on a city bus, you're interacting with everybody. If you walk through any given neighborhood, you're going to accept the most wealthy neighborhoods. You're going to see a lot of people of a lot of different colors going through on at any time of day. In some ways, you got to get over your shit. <laughs> so, you know, or you're just going to be pissed all the time. <laughs> and not only let's say that you're wealthy enough, and I know that they exist in San Francisco. I visited a couple of times because I love Kelly. So I've been there a couple of times. I totally need to go a lot more. I've been to San Francisco. And one of the other things that I've noticed with San Francisco, and you hit on this, is part of the reason you're having to interact with all of this is because the city itself is integrated, right? Like you have these neighborhoods that normally are all congregated in one area, right? Like the low income neighborhoods, if you will. And I I hate that, but people know what I'm talking about when I say it. So it's a phrase and there's a reason it's a phrase, but you have your low income areas. And that's the other thing that I noticed when we were in San Francisco is like, those communities slash neighborhoods are all intermixed. Like you're walking through one neighborhood and you're like, oh, uh, this is not that neighborhood that I was just in across the street. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you- there's definitely a lot of that. And there are still areas that are low income uh, neighborhoods that are solely low income neighborhoods. There are parts of the city where, of course, you know, those parts of the city have toxic dirt and stuff like that you push the people who can't defend themselves into that part of the city but even those parts of the cities are getting gentrified yes and I, I'm so like on the border about gentrification as I've gotten older I feel like I'm much more of, of a radical and I'm like burn it all to the ground um, yeah me too <laughs> for, for as- always tell me to shut up but I'm like nope getting my torch <laughs> and, then, and when i was younger i'm like let's just love each other and now i'm like i hate you all let's yeah. burn it to the ground anyway well, welcome to the club <laughs> right <laughs> been saying that since 1492 <laughs> yeah. nice nice okay so getting back to our topic when so you said that there were a lot of stuff there, there are other things that happened after cooper's donuts right mm-hmm. yeah i think it's cooper donuts not cooper's I don't know. I can't it's, tell. I think it's Cooper's. Is it Cooper's? I've seen it both. Oh, no, you're right. What I'm seeing right now is Cooper Donuts Riot. I was remembering the S, but the S was for donuts, not Cooper's after, because I saw a picture of the sign and it was a donut with a little S after it. And so I was thinking, oh, Cooper's. No, it's Cooper Donuts. Oh, okay. It feels like it. the S should be at the end of Cooper, but they were drunk when they wrote it. Or the people who made the sign were drunk. I don't yeah. know. Somebody was drunk. As long as somebody's drunk, it's all fine. Right, exactly. 
Okay, so are there any significant ones that we should know about before we get to Compton Cafeteria? Actually, what's really fun, so Wikipedia actually is a very good source for a lot of these things, and they have a whole list. We've not talked about Wikipedia on this episode, on any of our episodes. We hate Wikipedia, like it's not a thing, kidding. We totally talk about Wikipedia all the way. Yeah, so that one uh, starts with Cooper Donuts and then goes to, let's see, the gay men's draft records violated New York City, September of 64, pickets in New York City in December of 64, and then the Council on Religion and the Homosexuals listed, and then... Oh, that's right. You were going to talk about that. Yeah. Because it sounds so... I write fantasy, so it sounds like some sort of... Secret society or fun thing. It actually, it it's interesting. Okay, so you have again back to Dell and Phyllis, and they're trying to get things done in San Francisco, right? Because you have all of these laws, which are similar to laws all over the country, where police used anything and everything they could to try to arrest homosexual people. And at that point, I believe we were called homophiles instead of homosexuals. So. Ugh. There are things like if a man is wearing a shirt where the buttons button in the wrong direction, then you could be arrested for impersonating a woman. If you wore any article of clothing, actually, that would normally, quote unquote, be seen on the opposite sex, then you could be arrested for impersonating the opposite sex, gathering together, dancing, all of these things. Look, to come back to what we were talking about. I think it's really interesting to see how history plays into all of this, right? Mm-hmm. In the, you were talking earlier about a, ma- a like a real man is penetrating, which is action. And when I was studying medieval history, one of the things about medieval history, and I'd only learned it towards the end, and it made so much sense. I was like, oh, this explains so much. When you were looking at masculinity in medieval era, and this lasted through the Renaissance era as well, and and later on as well, but really these, this concept hit medieval and Renaissance, which was a man move. If you sat for too long, you act, the idea was you actually could become a woman, <laughs> right? So a man had to be active and this is why you wanted war. This is why you like all of these things. And you can see it across the world, especially because the Europeans colonized everywhere because Europeans are assholes, but mm-hmm. you see that same grain, that same bit, like as long as the man is active, in a gay relationship, he's seen not quite as gay or abhorrent as the guy who's passive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is, and again, based on that whole idea of medieval Renaissance Western idea of what does it mean to be active? What does it mean to be passive? Right. Right. But let's think about why women weren't active in that time period. Their clothing did not allow them to be active. Uh, hey, you know? I am not. And, and that's only for women with money. Yes. Because if you were a woman without money, if you were a peasant, you had to be active. Your ass was working. Completely agree. But I think the concept is very interesting in how that concept has played out. It's Oh, yeah. There's a myth built up around it. Exactly. And that myth persists. 
Exactly. And I think it's really interesting because it doesn't meet reality, which is what you're talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. If you're in the upper echelon, you fucking can't move. You are not running anywhere. Like, mm-hmm. I, like me as the guy, I'm throwing your ass behind me if we have a mass murderer, because I mm-hmm. know in those skirts, you ain't moving anywhere. He's got right. me and I'm out the door. And right? again, it comes back to um... probably not masculine, but whatever. It comes back to, again, with all of the money, the concept of who was allowed to be able to do what, which I think is one of the things that y'all were talking about in a previous episode of if you've got money, then you're not tan. If you've got money, then, you know, as a white person, you can just sit around and do nothing and pretend that's what you're supposed to be doing and that everybody else was supposed to be working. And that's how God intended. So crazy. Did you know, and I found this out not too long ago, I was looking into, have you ever seen the like Chinese movies, period pieces where the empress or the extremely rich woman is wearing that really long mm-hmm. like, finger? Mm-hmm. And sometimes on three fingers, sometimes it's just on the pinky. And I was like, I had searched forever to figure out what was going on with that. And I finally figured so interesting to me because it fits in with what we're talking about. Wealthy women wore it because it showed that they actually didn't need to use their hands for anything. Mm -hmm. I was like, what? You know what I think that brings up for me, the modern equivalent are manicured nails that are like three inches long because I don't Mm -hmm. understand how you can do I've legitimately and this is way too much information which just tells you where I'm at right now in terms of mimosas but like how do you wipe your butt (laughs) (laughs) thank you I I exactly I guess you have I guess they have a bidet bidet? yeah that's exactly what I'm thinking I'm like oh and that's that's classy you gotta go if you have a bidet because it does leak no, but that's my point, right? If you have a bidet, you're, you don't have, hopefully you're using it and it's getting everything. If you have the, the Japanese toilet seats, you can mm. have a bidet and an air dryer mm-hmm. as well. That's, oh, that's part true. of them. That's true. Yeah. So you really don't I'm, have to do anything. See, I'm not that classy. I was thinking of the tushy ones <laughs> uh-huh. they, they on Instagram. But even then I'm just like, you got long nails. How are you cleaning? And then I thought bidet, that means you're there. You made it about that because like i made it because i can have long nails and don't have to wipe my ass that's when i know i made it that's that's okay that needs to be a trailer for the for this i hear you i got it i'm on it Um, let's talk about gay history if i have a bidet i don't have to wipe my ass i don't know how that pieces together but we'll figure it out want to know more listen in (laughs) but i do think it's really interesting because and i do think it ties in with what we're talking about because we're joking about it but yeah like when you have those three inch long nails like that it Mm -hmm. always and i've seen longer oh yeah We've all seen longer. I'm amazed when they can type something with that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I've seen people trying to type with those. And I'm just like, how many times do you have to push the delete button? (laughs) Has it burned out yet? (laughs) Or when they're grabbing money from a cashier, like from a cashier's Mm -hmm. store. I do think it's really interesting that long nails back in the day did mean that. But what does it mean now? What does it mean currently? How does that work? And, but at the same time, 
are we and at slash people pulling that in as a way because that's how it had been so we're trying to emulate i think for just for what i've seen in my life around me is there is a level of presentation that has to happen and depending on which group you belong to Sometimes that presentation can mean life or death. You're trying to present yourself as acceptable to the majority. And so in order to do that, you're going to dress up and look as good as you can in any given situation. And, and so that presentation then becomes so ingrained that it becomes part of that group, not just a presentation to the majority, but a presentation to the group. Are you acceptable out in society? And, and there's a lot of that going on that I see around me, at least in the city, you know, that for whatever it is, wherever you're going, you better look good. And then you have me, <laughs> does my t-shirt have a spot on it? <laughs> Do my jeans have a hole in them? Okay, maybe it's time to get a new pair. <laughs> Depends on where the hole is. That's if, true. Yeah. And where you're going with that hole, right? That's true. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. I think it's really interesting that you said that because it does tie back to what we were talking about before where like we had hit on it. But when you were talking, Kelly, the whole idea of passing and how important that was for people. And as you were talking, one of the things that part of me that I was thinking about is how many shows, TV shows I've watched mm-hmm. where passing is part of that. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a man trying to pass as a woman, whether it's a woman trying to pass as a man, Mulan is the most recent one that I can think of. You always have somebody who's othered, right? No matter where you are, there's always somebody who's othered. And so that othered person at some point is going to try to pass as being one of the group. And it may be for reasons of survival. It may be for reasons of fuck you, I should be included. It may be for any number of reasons, but there's always going to be somebody who is going to try to get into the group that they've been pushed out of. And so a lot of those, at least the passing stories that, that I've seen have more to do with that, of just trying to become part of the group that they've been excluded from. And I think it's just, to me, it feeds into so much of, of all the movements. Like it goes back to what we were talking about originally of trying to say, I'm just like you. All of these movements at some point go through a phase of I'm just like you. And instead of being able to say I am who I am and I should be accepted just because why should I be excluded? There's no reason to exclude me, but it's... I think and I hope that at some point we've truly gotten to this idea of we're not going to fake who we are, that our group LGBTQ people have expressions across the board. There are some of us who are very similar to heterosexual people, and there are some of us who have some similarities to heterosexual people and some big differences. And then there are those of us that just couldn't pass even if we wanted to, that our expression cannot fake who we are. Like there are some gay men that I've met that if you don't know they're gay, just by spotting them five miles away, you can't tell they're gay. You're not really looking at them. You're looking at something else. And like, 
vice versa right. with lesbians. There have been some lesbians where I'm like, have you looked in the mirror? Like, did you need <laughs> her to come out? Did that? anybody really need that? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So you were going to talk about the council. Yes. So, yeah. So we've said that the city had tons of laws, anti-gay laws, and Dell and Phyllis were trying to get that changed. And so they were talking with one of the city supervisors and the city supervisor said, this is never going to change because if we changed it, we'd be seen as anti-motherhood. So they had to take a different tack. And in order to take a different tack, they had to come at it from, uh, they figured, probably a religious standpoint. Lucky for them, at the time, there was, I think he's Methodist, Ted McElvana. And so to give you an idea of the city, everybody thinks of the Castro as being San Francisco's gay area. That's modern gay. Originally, it was the Tenderloin. So the Tenderloin is uh, a part of a city. And if you, if you watch Screaming Queens, which is Compton Cafeteria Riots, as told by Susan Stryker and the other historian who worked with her, who for the life of me right now, I can't remember the name of, but they put together this movie called Screaming Queens, which you can actually stream online for free. If you go to Truly California through the KQED, which is our public television station, Truly California is a series that they do about movies about California. Then you can stream it on there for free and it's totally worth seeing. It's really well put together and gives you a lot of information. So Ted McElvana uh, was one of a number of clergy that worked in the Tenderloin. And what they were trying to do was outreach to LGBTQ people. They were trying to do outreach to the prostitutes, to the drug addicts, to anybody and everybody in the Tenderloin. One of the things that Susan Stryker says about the Tenderloin and looking up the definition of the word is that first you get, of course, it's a cut of meat. But after that, you get a definition of it being a um, part of a city that is essentially your low-income, crime-ridden part of a city. And... In some definitions, you'll see that also that part of the city is generally run by cops, by dirty cops, essentially. And so it's like that sort of racketeering kind of thing going on. So the clergy that worked in the Tenderloin were anything across the board from the people who were just doing that sort of militant outreach where it's, you're going to burn in hell if you don't join our church, that sort of thing, all the way up to people like Ted McElvana, who were very much trying to help people who were being beaten by cops, who were like one of the encounters that he himself talks about is that he was called to a, an apartment in the Tenderloin uh, and I don't remember if it was another priest that called him or just another community member that called um, for help from him. And he went to the apartment and there were two men who had been just beat the shit out of by cops. And, and so at that point, he didn't know that it was by cops. And he was like, we should call the cops. And they're like, they're the ones who did this. <laughs> so he was trying to do outreach Dell and Phyllis were trying to attack city laws from a different perspective, and they were introduced to each other. And so through their conversations, go ahead, Chad, I hear, I see a question. It's more of a comment. Uh -huh. And I want our listeners to really understand something that 
the down and out in society have a very different look at the police. Mm-hmm. They've always had a different relationship with the police. There's a whole history there. And you see a little bit of it in, in different period movies, right? So one of the things I like about LA Confidential is that they do actually cover all of the craziness that, that police back in the day did. That history still exists. That history didn't go away. Like that, the, the communities in which those policemen were acting and the repercussions of those actions didn't, they didn't go away. Maria and I are real, we're both huge supporters, if you will, of oral history. And I think that people forget that leaving, this is an odd analogy, but I come up with all of them, but leaving a review on something is very similar to an oral history, right? Like you're giving your opinion about something. This is what happens when it's passed down. Like when you are in a community that is othered, as you mentioned before, right? Like when you're an othered community, your relationship with the police, especially back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s was typically, and even in the 60s and 70s was not good. Yep. We can, in the LGBTQ community, as a gay man, I can look to Jeffrey Dahmer just in the like recent quote unquote past and say, yep, that was his first victim. And had they stopped and thought about it, it might have been his first, it might have been his second. I can't remember exactly which one it was. They're like, ah, oh, it's just a couple of gay dudes having an argument. Like, no, this dude is writing from his fucking life because someone's going to eat him. Like, and not in a fun way. He's going to get eaten. So I just, the thing when you were talking that popped up for me over and over again was Trayvon Martin. And in particular with Trayvon Martin, I'm not trying to bring up this whole controversial thing, but in particular, when I was watching the trial, and Trayvon Martin's friend. And I had to actually stop watching this because it pissed me off so much because it was coming from, I was watching the prosecutor, not the prosecutor, the defense go against his friend. And I cannot remember her name to save the life of me, but why he kept saying, why wouldn't you call the police? 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 Fuck you, I wouldn't call the police. Mm -hmm. No, that's not someone who's safe. Yeah, and- As a white woman, I have to tell you that it took me a long time to learn that lesson that because I was raised to believe that the police were helpful and that if you have a problem, you call the police and they come out and they protect you. And as I've gotten older, I realized that maybe they would protect me, but they wouldn't protect any of the people who would be around me in that moment. And that I don't necessarily know what is going on in situations where I would feel like I need to call the police. That (laughs) my thought about what's going on could very easily not be what's going on. And I need to take a step back and just fucking get over myself and think, oh, maybe I should just keep my fucking nose out of this because it's got nothing to do with me. Yeah. And that's the thing for like, as a gay man, it's easy for me to pass. Mm -hmm. Really, and I've said this in previous episodes that really, until I open my mouth, I feel like most people are going to suspect that I am a straight white man. That once I open my mouth, I think I sound like a a gay man. Like, you're a quintessential gay man. I think I sound like him. Yeah, pretty queer. Right. No, and I'm not trying to uh, demean that in any way. But I, like, the first moment you started talking and (laughs) couldn't stop gesturing... I was like, oh, he's family. (laughs) 
See, and I'm trying to remember the first time I met Chad, and I'm thinking, did I think he was gay? You I pretty, don't remember. Like, it became a- No, because I think the very, very first time you spoke to me was very short and very curt, and I was like, this dude, who is this dude think he is? <laughs> and then the yeah, second time- Is that I'm either arrogant or gay, or both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> Why not both? But, uh, be like, everything I'm, you can be, Chad. <laughs> Reach for the stars. <laughs> but yeah, like I, I, I want people to get that. Uh, like the police are not always the first thing that I think of when I think of safety. And I'm white, and I grew up in the Midwest, and the police were not the thing that I was supposed to think were evil or bad or whatever. But I don't trust them. I know the history of it. Mm-hmm. I know the history of them. I've watched them. Like it, I, I want our listeners to get that if you haven't been in that situation, it, it is a learned experience, but also a taught experience. Mm-hmm. You are taught if you're in those communities, these are not trustworthy people. Mm-hmm. So when you were talking, all I could think about was Trayvon Martin. And then you put so Trayvon Martin was just a person of color, right? Like a man of color. That's that literally that's all he was. He happened to be in a hoodie. But so holy shit. Now he's anyway. Oh, I could totally go off. But anyway, it was when you were talking, what I kept thinking of was the trial and this woman, his his friend that he was on the phone with. Yeah, I was gonna say it's the young lady. Uh her name is uh Rachel Jantel. Yes. And how he kept the defense attorney kept badgering and badgering about not calling the police. And I'm like, that is not going to ever be her first response to anything. If it is danger, get to your dad's house. That is where you're going to be safe. Don't call the fucking police because they're going to make things worse. Yeah. Like they're not out for your safety. They're out for the safety of everyone who doesn't look like you. And for me, it's, they're not out for my safety. They might be if they don't realize that I'm like, if they haven't hung out with a bunch of gay people, they're not going to know that I'm gay. Even if I start talking, they might be like, this dude's a sissy dude, but they may not necessarily think I'm gay, which could play in my favor. But that depends on what their history is. We're essentially on a quest to demean the people in that district, to consistently harass them, to consistently arrest them, to humiliate them in any way, shape, or form, they felt like they wanted to at that point. And and they felt like they could because they were othered. And they felt like they could because they had the power of the badge behind them. And, and nobody was going to say anything about it. Like you weren't going to go to a quote unquote respectable neighborhood and have those people go, oh, please don't harass them. And it's not going to happen. So Hey, they, back yeah. in the 1940s when we're talking about beaver that's not gonna happen right and, Sorry, and at the same time to say leave it to beaver not just like beaver yeah like, yeah you should be a little more specific there but at the same time <laughs> i was like i don't know what's going on anymore <laughs> yeah it's, you've lost control here <laughs> so at this point in the dsm you have homosexuality listed as a mental condition and you have psychologists who will 
condemn people for this and who will send them away to different psychiatric institutions to have therapy. And by therapy, we're talking about electroshock therapy and things like this. They would give them medications to make them sick and then show them pictures of things that they thought might sexually excite the person so that there would be that mental connection between being completely ill and being sexually excited so that maybe you wouldn't be gay anymore. And you know, those are the kinds of ways that people, that homosexual people were treated at that time. So to have cops come in and harass you, that, that was just part of a normal day. That wasn't anything special. That wasn't anything that you weren't expecting to happen. That was life. All the, the people who were constantly receiving that harassment were forced into the tenderloin because they couldn't get a house. They couldn't get an apartment anywhere else. Nobody would rent to them if they suspected that you were gay. And if you were trans or a drag queen or something like that, you didn't have the money to go anywhere else. Everything else was too expensive. So one of the things in Screaming Queens that they talk about is that if you were a trans prostitute, then most likely you were sharing an apartment or not an apartment, an SRO, uh, which is just a single room within a hotel where you can you know, rent these rooms monthly, but you were sharing that room with probably six other people. And there were certain hours of the day where you could go and sleep, but that was all uh, portioned out because you couldn't afford that room without those five other people. You would have certain hours you could go sleep and then somebody else would come in and they would sleep and you would be out the door. Um, Screaming Queens, was you could watch it where? You can stream it online. There's a documentary series called Truly California. Okay. But all you have to do, just Google Screaming Queens and it'll come up. It should also be, what I'm seeing is that it might also be on Amazon Prime. Oh, it might be. I don't know if they play it for free on there, but it, you can screen, you can stream the entire thing for free through Truly California and KQED. And then Victor Silverman, is that the guy that you were thinking of? That or? might be him. That might be him. Yeah. Because that's the only other person besides Susan Stryker that I'm seeing. Conducting. Yeah. So the two of them are both historians and they've, they knew each other for a while before they did Screaming Queens and they both wanted to do historical movies and had like this dream of being able to take history and do all of these movies about them. And I think he, when he talks about it, he wanted to do a fiction, historical fiction and she had just found information in the LGBTQ archives here in San Francisco. One thing about Compton's cafeteria riot, and she was like, is this real? And, and so then she started researching it because she'd never heard of it before. And, and then she was kind of, <laughs> I won't say forced him into doing that one, but was just like, I have all the info. Can we just start here? <laughs> but anyways, um, yeah, so back to the police and, and Ted McElvena had conversations with Dell and Phyllis and they decided that they would start a group where clergy could learn more about LGBTQ people because there were some legitimate clergy that actually were trying to serve the LGBTQ community from 
whatever perspective, whether you agree with the perspective or not, they were trying what they thought they could do. I'm not one for missionary work, but there are some groups that actually do find help in missionary work to survive. And at this point in time, it really was necessary for survival's sake to try to get rid of some of these laws. And if the clergy could help, why not at least give it a try? It ended up that there were, I think, six different LGBTQ groups that partnered with 12 clergy and created what they call the Council on Religion and the Homosexual. And so they met as a group. They did a retreat in Mill Valley, which is across the Golden Gate Bridge North, in a really lovely little house that you could rent. They had a three-day weekend where they went and just chatted and talked about what sort of things they were hoping to achieve and what they thought they might be able to achieve, how they thought they might start fundraising to make these things happen. They really wanted to become a legitimate group. And some of the people who were part of that, like Ted McElvena, but also Cecil Williams, who, if you know anything about San Francisco history, he's a huge part of San Francisco history. He um, and Ted McElvena were both part of Glide Memorial, which is an activist church, essentially. They have been trying to move human rights forward since as far as I know, since it was instituted. And Ted McElvena had hired on Cecil Williams specifically for that sort of outreach. So the two of them were part of it. Del and Phyllis were part of it. Harry Hay and people from Mattachine, people from Sir, people from a few other groups that right now I'm not remembering all of them. But anyways, they decided over the course of the year because they, they instituted themselves in 1964 They needed a fundraiser and they decided that they would do a masquerade ball. And that was going to happen January 1st, 1965. It was going to be through ticket sales. You could not get in without a ticket and there would be alcohol served and it would include dancing and all of this. And these were all things that if you're gay, you can't do. This was really pushing some limits. In order to make this happen, they wanted to be sure that it would be as safe as possible. And they knew to expect trouble with it. So they hired some lawyers and they went through all the permitting process that you needed to do. And in order to do those permits, they needed to go and talk to the cops. So they wanted to talk to the chief of police, but instead of being directed to the chief of police, they were directed to the vice squad. And they had lots of conversations with them. They wanted to be sure that the thing wasn't raided because if it was raided, then not only were people going to get arrested, but there could be injuries. And so they wanted it to be safe. So I feel like I need to back up for a second and just talk about some of the things that, like I was saying, you can't, if you're LGBTQ at that time, you can't gather together. Right. If you go ahead, what were you going to say? I was going to say, so I think it's interesting and I wanted, because I, uh, I knew what you were talking about, but I want other people to understand exactly what the vice squad is. Looking at the vice squad is a division of the police, obviously, 
But what they're looking at is stopping public order crimes like gambling, narcotics, prostitution, and illegal states of alcohol. So that's the vice squad. And I think it's very interesting that they got directed to the vice squad. Mm -hmm. And then as you said, so that was pulled from Wikipedia. I just wanted something real quick to pull Mm -hmm. up, get a quick definition. Okay, keep going. I just wanted to, I wanted to throw that out there so people understand why vice squad and the, the importance of Vice Squad in, in that story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because that is exactly how they're looking at the possibility of this thing. And also to tell people that at this point in time, if you are arrested for anything having to do with LGBTQ anything, your picture is taken, not just for with the number and all of that, but your photograph is taken and printed in the newspaper with your address, with your name, with your employer. And oftentimes your employer is called to let them know that you've been arrested for this. So not only are you then going to most likely lose your job and your income, but if you're doing this on the down low and your wife or husband is not aware of uh, this, then your marriage is most likely over. Since your address is printed in the newspaper, anybody could go beat the shit out of you. There's all sorts of threatening things that happen if you are caught doing any of this. In talking to the police, they're trying to prevent multiple things, right? Not just a raid, but the loss of anybody's job, the loss of anybody's life, the loss of anybody's marriage, all of the things that could be the fallout of this. So... You've got this meeting with the vice squad. And like I was saying before, and I wasn't kidding, most of the police at that time in San Francisco were Irish Catholic. And they were looking at this and the policing of LGBTQ things very much as a religious thing. And Ted McIlvaina and the lawyers talk about the meeting with the vice squad. They were, the vice squad was more concerned about the theology of what was happening than the actual act of what was happening. And so they said that things like one of the guys had a a wedding band and one of the police officers pointed to the wedding band and said, it looks like you're married. And the person said, yeah. And he said, what does your wife think of you interacting with all these people? And like those sorts of questions were what was coming up, not how many people will be there and what sort of license do you need or any of that. Does your wife know you're hanging out with queers? that was really more of their concern than the actual my wife knows that your dick oh my god okay keep going yeah when they left the meeting though they were told that the police would not show up this was of course a lie what plot twist i I know totally shocking totally i'll let your audience take a breath So they felt like they had all their permits. They'd had these assurances from the cops. And, and so they felt, okay, we can do this. But they still, of course, had the lawyers. <laughs> they weren't stupid. So 500 tickets were sold through these different LGBTQ organizations and through the churches. And it turns out, I believe, and I'm trying to remember if this was in the initial meeting with the cops or a subsequent meeting with the cops, But one of the things that the cops were upset about was the idea of anybody like traipsing down the street in an outfit of the opposite gender. And so one of the things that they had to 
make an assurance of was that people would show up in cars right in front of California Hall, get out of the car and walk into California Hall and then the limo service or the taxi would drive off. So you weren't all over the streets in like a guy in a dress or a woman in pants. My God. So that was one of the things that they did say would happen was that they would show up in these cars. Oh, heaven forbid that there would be a woman in pants. I know it's groundbreaking. Man, I, that is a past I could not live in. (laughs) (laughs) I literally just spent my morning looking for comfortable pants. Uh, You hussy. (laughs) Clearly. Guilty as charged. I'm just saying, clearly. I'm sorry. I really like my pockets. Did I not talk about a dress with pockets? It's necessary. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. This is a very, this is very interesting because this is not history I know at all. So keep going. So the night comes where this is supposed to happen. So January 1st, 1965. And all of these people, you know, it's supposed to start at 9 p.m. and go till about 1 a.m. And at 9.15, the cops show up and they set up their big Klieg lights and they've got paddy wagons. And so people who are showing up after that, they have to decide. Are they going to actually get out of their cars and go into this dance or are they going to just keep on going and not, not be bothered by this? And they show up, 500 people show up and the cops are taking pictures of them as they go in. You can find these pictures online. I'll actually, I'll send you uh, the link to this, but there's a, an LGBTQ religious archives.org that actually has a really good online exhibit about the Council on Religion and the Homosexual and about this particular event. And you can see the different pictures uh, that were taken, or at least some of them, not all of them are in this, but I think there's there's only eight or 10 I remember in this particular exhibit. But their pictures were taken and the cops start doing what were they calling it? Oh, fire, fire escape checks or something like that, where they're forcing their way into this event to make sure that fire exits and fire safety protocol have been um, actually done in this building. And so they go in once and the people at the door who are taking the tickets feel like they have to let them in to do this. Half an hour later, they want to do another check. And so they force their way in again. The third time that they try to do this, the two lawyers that were at the door, and I can't remember if the woman, I seem to recall her being one of the pastor's wives, was taking tickets at the door. And they said, that's enough. You've checked everything you can check. There's really nothing left for you to do. No, we're not letting you in. And so they were immediately arrested for obstructing the police. And of course, the police forced their way in. And there were three other people arrested that night. Two of them were just two guys at the dance who had been standing up on folding chairs, trying to get a look over the dance to just, you know, see everybody's costumes and all of this. And the chairs weren't very stable. And so one of them started to fall and the other one tried to prevent the first guy from falling. And so the cops, I think, were being guided through the place at that point by some of the clergy and the cops were like that guy grabbed that other guy's ass did you see it and the clergyman was like no and neither did you and so that clergy was arrested and those two guys were arrested so 
the interesting things that came out of this, because of course, at that time with the police in there starting to arrest people, everybody was freaked out and running, just trying to get away because they couldn't afford to be arrested. And this is not the regular group that gets arrested. These are the people who could afford to buy tickets to a dance. These are the people who could afford to have costumes to wear to a dance. And if you get a look at some of these photos, they're elaborate costumes. This is not just like something you'd get at Halloween Town or something like that. These are huge wigs and brocade jackets and things like this. These are crazy outfits. These are people who have most likely full-time jobs and houses and apartments and things like that. And we're about to lose all of that. So they were out of there. So you have the two, the two lawyers that were arrested, the clergyman and the three regular people, right? The day after the dance, so January 2nd, the, the clergy hold a press conference and they hold a press conference because they can hold a press conference. They're respectable people. They go in and they just rip the police apart in this press conference and, and call them out for all the bullshit that they were doing and harassing everybody and that they had made these promises and then broke these promises. And that actually got printed you can find that uh, in the newspaper clippings from that time. And that was incredibly unusual to have something about anything having to do with homosexuals in the newspaper, other than them getting arrested, to have something that was actually standing up for them and standing against the police was not normal. And so there was so much backlash that the ACLU took on the case of the lawyers who had been arrested. And the, I think it, God, it was like a huge number of lawyers from the ACLU that took on these cases. <laughs> and, and at that point, when they came before, the judge actually immediately directed the jury to find the lawyers innocent and said, this is ridiculous. This should never have happened. These guys are innocent. And, and so I think from what I read about the jury's deliberations, it took 10 minutes and then they came back and wow. said, even if the judge had not said to find you innocent, you're innocent. <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. So there was just things that you would not have expected to happen in relation to a gay event that were good that came out of this. Let's see, hold on just a second, because I have some notes that I pulled up about some of the things that, let me see if I can find them. As soon as I find them, I'll let you know. Just about the good and unexpected things that had happened in this. Where did that go? Of course, I actually don't have them right in front of me, but I'll find them. So this begins a whole process of, of different thinking about LGBTQ people within the city of San Francisco. And the process to start getting laws changed and that the LGBTQ people actually had people who weren't LGBTQ on their side and on their side publicly. So that still didn't, the changes weren't fast and they were things that didn't necessarily help in all the ways that you'd hope they would. Because you still have cops and they're still 
harassing people and arresting people. And, oh, and one of the, I'm sorry, one of the funny things that came out, there was the arrest of the the lawyers. And so the cops called the firms of the lawyers and said, we arrested these people at this gay function, blah, blah, blah. And their firms apparently were like, that doesn't sound like any of my business, does it? (laughs) 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 We're just like, all right. So I appreciated that. Yeah, no, that's not the notes either. Anyways, so you still had trans people and you still had drag queens and, and the prostitution in all of the different communities going on in the tenderloin and Compton's cafeteria was a 24 hour cafeteria. And it was one of those safe places where trans people could meet up and drag Queens could meet up. And it was a local chain. There were a bunch of Compton's cafeterias, but the one in the tenderloin was at Turk and Taylor. And that particular one was where you would see all of these drag Queens and, and local gay prostitutes and So one of the reasons for going there was, of course, because it was a safe place, but also you just, you needed to meet with your friends in the evenings to just let them know that you had survived, that Mm -hmm. you had done whatever trick you'd done that day and that person hadn't killed you. Or Uh, multiple tricks that you did. You know, however many, and you had survived it. And they would go there and they would just talk about whatever had happened that day. and, And they were also there to be seen. And because if you were either a drag queen or you were a transsexual, you wanted people to see you as you were and for who you were, and you could do that there. So Compton's had these big plate windows and apparently people would fight to be the person sitting closest to the window so that you could be seen by anybody who was passing by. And it was just, it was a small delight to be able to be there and have people see you for who you were. And if you're in the middle of all of this shit, any sort of delight is good. It's good. The cops knew, of course, that this was a place where everybody would hang out. And so if they wanted to harass somebody, they could easily do it there. If there was any particular person they were looking for, they could most likely find them there. So this was a normal thing for people to be harassed and to be harassed there. The guy who ran Compton's wasn't necessarily thrilled about people hanging out there overnight like that, especially if you weren't you know, there to buy a bunch of stuff. And of course, they didn't have a lot of money to buy a bunch of stuff. So you'd have a lot of people who would just go in for a cup of coffee and they would be there for hours just nursing a cup of coffee. And then you had some people who may have been part of the drag shows around and and might have a little bit more money and would actually be able to buy some food, but he wasn't making a ton overnight. And so he was more buddy with the police than he was with his customers. Yeah. For me, the, the legacy of Compton's and Cooper Donuts and all of the different riots that trans people have, have started is a legacy of courage. I think out of all of LGBTQ history, theirs is the most courageous. And I'm not setting aside the fact that they were forced to be courageous, but, but they were courageous and that's undeniable. The idea that they would just buck the system in so many ways to walk around being themselves, which was an extremely dangerous thing to do. 
to take on making money any way they could, which ended up being an extremely dangerous thing to do. And to then tell the police to essentially fuck off when they bothered them too much and threatened them too much was an extremely courageous thing to do. And without their courage, a lot of things wouldn't have happened. And I don't believe that LGB people recognize that enough and admire that enough and give essentially enough credit to that part of the community that we have historically tried to separate ourselves from. And anytime trans people come into the group and essentially say, ah, can we be part of this now? And LGB people are like, I don't know, maybe we'll see. We'll take you in for a few minutes, but when it's problematic, we'll distance ourselves again. You good with that? Trans people are like, I'll take what I can get historically, at least, that's what they've had to do. And now I feel like they are able to, if you want to say, come into their own and recognize their own power and take on their own fights without us if they need to. And if they want to be with us, take up the struggle together. But nobody can blame them for being fuck off for most of the fights that they have and just setting up their own transgender legal service and things like this that you can find in San Francisco. Because why would they want to rely on us in any way, shape or form when historically we haven't been there for them? I find yeah, and and that's, and that's the continued struggle of marginalization, like marginalized mm-hmm. peoples, isn't it? Like you're talking about it in that breakdown in the LGBTQ plus community. Mm-hmm. And then you, you zoom out and you look at LGBTQ plus people in their, in different, what we call minority groups, like in the United mm-hmm. States, whether you're black or you're Asian or you're uh, Latino and you keep zooming out. And that's just a constant theme, mm-hmm. right? Like just basically saying, fuck you, you don't know you won't support my struggle yeah. and we're, and, and it is, it's incredibly, it's sad. And I, that's a huge understatement, mm-hmm. but it, because it's just a loss, it's so much more than just tragic. It's so much more than just heartbreaking and infuriating when you're looking at it from an introspective point of view. What is it about the way that our, and I speak for Mexican Americans, but what is it about us that we just can't get that we would be so much more together if we were together. Mm. A lot of this conversation has reminded me of Cesar Chavez and the way that the union workers strike, the farm workers strikes, how there was this incredible demonization of undocumented workers in during that. And a lot of folks are now starting to have that conversation that yes, Cesar Chavez was fighting for farm workers and he also often demonized the undocumented immigrant we're also working on those same farms with documented people or fully naturalized citizens, but they were Latino. And so that's why they were being also forced mistreated. Mm-hmm. So it's very resonant. It's, it's just this constant pattern. Yeah. Of- well, it's because the majority group is constantly trying to rip everybody else apart and well, pit them against each other. Yeah. That's what I was going to say is it's one of those things where I, what I've seen is it seems to be the majority is saying there's, there's this pie and this pie is limited mm-hmm. and the pie is rights. So mm-hmm. we have this rights pie. It's very limited and you can, we can only dole out certain 
rights. And if we dole out more rights to the LGBTQ community, then that means the Latino community, the Mexican American community, the undocumented community within what, however you want to break it all down, all of that, you're going to have less rights. So you have to fight us for our rights and the black African Americans have to fight us for, and you for their rights. And the Jewish community has to fight for their rights. And because there's this limited rights pie that the majority is doling out. And that's, Mm -hmm. it's always amazed me how throughout history that has actually worked because it's not like the United States was new on doing that. Right. And not even talking about rights, but just whatever it is, right? Oh no, this is limited. That's what we're saying. This concept that we created has a limitation on it. We can only hold out so much, even though we made it up to begin with, but no, we can only give out so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to take all of us to say, bitch, I don't even want pie. Give me some cookies. Make me some cupcakes. This is, this does not work. Just bring them to me. And when you're trying to, it goes back to that thing of when you're trying to get whatever rights and whatever movement you're comparing yourself to the group that has them. And in order to do that, you have to demonize somebody else because I'm like you, I'm not like those over there who those weirdos do blah, blah, blah. I'm like you. So there's always somebody that's being pushed down in order for one person to step up. And that tactic further splits everybody apart instead of saying, yeah, okay, we're all queer or we're all black or we're all whatever, which would give everybody more power. Everybody is so afraid that they won't get that one little bit of power that they want. And so in order to do that, I'm going to sell you out, which the LGBTQ community was definitely doing. And I specifically say LGBTQ was doing because trans people were doing that as well, trying to compare themselves to other people and normalize themselves if they thought they could get ahead, just a lesbian, a gay, or a bi person was doing at the same time. That was not unique to any particular part of the group. Everybody was doing that. And you can see there are definitely some clips in Screaming Queens about that, where they're talking about these, there are these two trans women who are talking about how everybody was telling them that they were dressing like a girl. And they're saying, I wasn't thinking I was dressing like a girl. I am a girl. I'm not, you know, I, why would I dress like a boy? And, but then saying things like, I'm just like any other woman, not like those Queens with their seven foot tall hair and all of them. So trying to normalize themselves in the view of whoever is looking at them at that moment. And of course, normalizing yourself, then in some ways is denying your differences and denying who the richness of who you fully are because of whatever internalized homophobia or internalized racism or whatever is going on for you at the moment that then makes you feel like you have to compare yourself to the white, cis, hetero, whatever. So there's so much complexity in these battles and in these struggles and who gets to call themselves normal and who gets to be safe and who gets to any of those things. It's, there's just so much to unpack in all of this. And and obviously we won't get to any of it. 
But where did we leave off with Compton's? Chad, what was the last thing you heard? If you can remember. That the police knew where to go. Yeah. Okay. Who was going to be there. Yeah. So they could go in and harass anybody at any time. They knew that they would most likely find them at Compton's at some point. And I think you probably missed, Maria and I were talking about the people who ran that particular Compton's because it was a local chain. They weren't making a lot of money overnight because people would sit there with cups of coffee and for hours because a lot of the people that were going in there didn't have the money to spend on like a big meal. So they might have a cup of coffee. Maybe they would have a little something unless you were one of the performers at one of the local bars or shows, then you might have some money to actually spend on some food. So the people who ran the place weren't exactly loving the people who came in overnight as they were just taking up space in the place. But who's going to come in at three in the morning? <laughs> if you've got somebody who's sitting there buying a cup of coffee, that's more than you would get probably at three in the morning. There was that sort of stress and struggle between the patrons and the management of the place. The management was more on the side of the cops than they were on the side of the patrons and would complain to the cops that all of these people were sitting there and taking up space in their restaurant. So... On some night in August of 1966, the, and like I had said much earlier, the people who were there don't remember what night it was. Nobody can pinpoint what, what the date was. They just know it's August. So a cop came in and was harassing one of the transgender women or a drag queen. I'm not sure which I don't, uh, and that person had just had enough and threw coffee in the face of the cop and the place just exploded. There were sugar shakers being thrown through windows. There were, it was like immediate riot. Everybody was just on edge and ready for this apparently. And so it flooded out into the street. All of the windows in the place were broken. It was just craziness, but it was one night of riot and then the second night, there was a picketing in front of the place. So the things that made this unique in the history of our riots up to that point, at this point, it created a need for different interaction with the police. And the police actually agreed to this, and they created a position that was a liaison between the cops and the LGBTQ community. And this is the first time in the U.S. that this happens. The guy who was that liaison, Officer Elliot, I don't remember his last name. I'm a straight. Pardon? I'm assuming he identified as straight. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he took that job seriously. And I'm not saying that he was like super loving of the LGBTQ community or had some sense of like their need to be respected or anything like that. But what he did have was the common decency to recognize that people should be able to live their life how they want to live it, as long as they're not hurting anybody else. And that they have the ability, they should have the ability to live their life in peace and not be harassed by the cops. And so that was a huge step forward. And in fact, he did that job so well that the other police on the force were not having it. And they actually planted narcotics in his desk and had him fired 
I don't remember how many years he was that liaison before that happened, but I heard him speaking about it at the premiere, actually, of Screaming Queens. He was there and Susan Stryker was there and, and they were talking about their movie and he was talking about his role just in the police department. And he was saying just how much shit he was getting from the other cops because he was making it okay to be queer and, and they weren't having it. So he had to go, but some other things that happened from that were social services in the tenderloin social services that did outreach to the trans community and the drag Queens and the prostitutes. And, and so there was a, and that was one of the things that, that officer Elliot helped with was getting people to these social services. And, and so things truly were starting to change in the way that LGBTQ people were interacted with by the city, by the government. So, you know, that then could lead to the things that started coming around just in the country in general of getting homosexuality decriminalized and getting it out of the DSM as a, an actual like mental issue and being able to get rid of some of these ridiculous laws that essentially were just ways to be able to harass the community. Ascot. <clears throat> and made ascots acceptable. And so <laughs> this, again, was another riot that was not talked about in the news, that was not talked about in the papers. And it was a spontaneous thing. But the more that these things started happening, that then built up the concepts of eventually of, oh, look how many things are changing. We should take advantage of these situations when they happen, which there were more things between Compton's and Stonewall. But by the time Stonewall came around, enough of this stuff had happened that yes, there was this spontaneous riot that was built on disrespect and violence from the police, but there were enough people there who had experienced enough of this in our history to say, we should actually take advantage of this. And so instead of it being a one day riot, it became a multiple day riot. And they actually got media there and they got coverage of it. And that's why Stonewall has become this, this spot in LGBTQ history that everybody remembers because people had the thought of, oh, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> we're actually going to capture this one. You know? And they were able to, you know, prioritize that and get people talking about it. And so then all of a sudden it's, oh yes, it's this watershed moment. And suddenly gay people rose up. No, we've been rising up for decades, but somebody then called a photographer and a reporter and made something out of it, you know, because we caught up at that point. We're like, hey, we need to talk about this you start utilizing things when you actually realize it makes a difference. Yeah. A lot of, of things happened before Stonewall and all of them built up to create Stonewall as a thing. So that's really, it's really interesting because you and I had talked a little bit about both of the things that you talked about today, not the council, which still sounds so medieval and fantastical, but whatever. 
but we had talked about Cooper's Donut, Cooper Donuts. We had talked about Compton Cafeteria and not in such a detail. So I think it's really fascinating to hear this history. And then the other thing that I think is really interesting is you talked about the courage, right? And I think one thing to keep in mind, if you're not part of a marginalized community is while you may see courage, that courage may have taken a while to build up. Not from the person who's doing that thing that you think is courageous. That is just anger and pent up frustration. That's not courage. That's I'm fucking done and I have nothing left and I'm over all of this fucking bullshit that has been going on for however long, potentially my whole entire life. Here's your fucking coffee right in the face. Mm -hmm. Here's the stone through the whatever, right? Or the brick through the window, like whatever it is. And I I agree with you. I'm not saying that's not courageous, but I I also want to say like for the person who did it, it may not have been courageous. It may have been, fuck this shit. I am so fucking done. The courage comes in living their life openly. And that's where the courage is. The, like you're saying, the coffee in the face is anger. (laughs) That's a gut reaction. That's not courage. (laughs) No, the coffee in the face is I can't stop my arm from moving. Yes. Next (laughs) movement. Yeah. My next moment of courage was going to be coffee in the face. (laughs) Sorry, Chad. Not going to work. Find another one. Sweetie, that's okay. You can be delusional. It's all good. It's your bar. You can set yeah. it. You can set it here if you want, or you can set it above. That's up to you. But I, th- I think that's a really good point as well. Is that yeah, the willingness to say this is who I am. This is always who I am. Mm-hmm. And yes, you're right. Like the, that's the courage. I, and I agree with you. But I also think that people look at those moments that brick through the window, the coffee in the face, and they say that's really courageous because that started the riot but that's not what started the riot what started the riot is years of frustration so, so, so i'm gonna i'm gonna say this and expect to hear a little bit of flack oh, about it right. but i think those kind of moments the moments that a lot of people tend to think are the courageous moments the coffee in the face the brick those are the courageous moments for mediocre people those are the courageous moments for people who never had anything to lose to begin with. That's because that for them is courage, being able to like finally stand up because otherwise it, everything's fine. And that's not always the case, but I think for a lot of people that tends to be the case. And the one thing I've, I've been really in awe about listening to all of this history has been very much like what I think of the courage is the everyday, right? The courage is doing the thing that bucks against the, the norm. The couple of things that have been going through my mind are like, who set these stupid rules about norm anyway? And I, I know the answer to all of these. I'm not so naive to not know, but personally, They're like not I'm not wanting me to answer them for you. No, please don't. As <laughs> because, the token white guy on yeah, this. Yeah, I, I was going to say, as the white man on this right now, maybe you don't want to answer that for <laughs> yeah. me. You should probably just keep your mouth <laughs> shut. But uh, this is where I would encourage you to drink whatever you <laughs> water, orange juice, whatever you have in front of you. But that's that's the thing. It's like, it, and for a lot of folks, mediocre is a bad word, right? Like mediocre is something you don't want to be. And there's an imp- there's an incredible privilege to be being, being mediocre. 
Mm-hmm. There's, an, there's an incredible privilege to not feeling like things are a challenge. So when you see moments like this, when you see moments where somebody's so fed up that they just can't contain it anymore, and they say, wow, that's courage. It's, it's, it is dismissive of what it takes to do and be who you are on a constant basis. And there's a huge sense of admiration that is just never ending for everyone who can con- continue to exist in their way. And I must, I, I, there has to be this incredible sense of frustration for those who just are like, this is who I am, right? This is, I am not anything else than who I am. And that shouldn't be courageous. Like that shouldn't be seen as my everyday shouldn't be seen as courageous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's if you look at that from, uh, let's say, a disability standpoint, where you have somebody who you know, has whatever issue going on, maybe they're in a wheelchair, maybe they're, they have lots of seizures or something like that. If you, if you are looking at them as courageous, that's such a tokenization, that's such a dismissal of their life and just who they are. If there's a really fantastic TED talk, I think it's one of my favorites that's called I'm Not Your Inspiration. I knew exactly which one you were talking about before. Oh, you said yeah. It. Have you, I love you seen it? it? I love her. Oh my God, she's amazing. Uh, she, Chad, if you haven't seen this one, she was saying that there was some group when she was a kid that was trying to give her an award. And her mom was like, who's giving you an award? What have you done? You watch Buffy all the time. Like, that's how you spend your days. And, uh, and, she's, and she thought about that as she was uh, getting older and was just like, yeah, I hadn't done anything. There was no reason to give me an award. They were just saying that I was their inspiration. And so me just living my life was inspiring because how difficult it must be to be me and blah, blah, blah. And it's it's only difficult because the rest of the world has made it difficult. It's only difficult because we're saying you don't belong and we're not giving you access to the things that everybody else has. That's why your life is difficult. And so for a trans person to be somebody's inspiration instead of just, hey, I'm just living my life and shouldn't I be able to just go about my day like anybody else? Who the fuck are you to say, oh, you're so courageous for just being you. But of course, at that point in time, it was extremely courageous to walk down the street as somebody who was born a male and to be in women's clothing, even if that's who you are, somebody else was about to kill you for it. Even now, like the statistics show that is an act of courage to live the way you are. And Mm -hmm. Let's put this in perspective, though, because I I think it's really interesting as we're talking about this, that, yeah, and I think we all agree that extremely courageous to live your life as who you are. But if Lady Gaga wasn't Lady Gaga and she was doing all of that stuff without having a voice and millions of dollars behind her and a bunch of people who are willing to listen to her, is she courageous or is she just fucking loony? I think most people, if it was me answering this, I think most people would look at her as being a little bit of a freak because (laughs) in so many ways, her life, there is no risk involved. She's a white woman. She can do what she needs to do. And it's most people are going to just be like, whatever, that's crazy. What's her name over there wearing her meat dress? It's like nobody nobody is going to and for really for several years for a lot of people she's still the crazy white lady who wore Mm -hmm. a meat dress and forgive my forgive my ignorance 
uh, I have to ask, in relation to what we've been talking about, how does Lady Gaga as an example fit? Because I'm having a hard time. Because what if she, th that's what I'm saying. What if Lady Gaga wasn't Lady Gaga? She was just that crazy light white lady who wore a dress down the street. Is yeah, that, is I, I don't think crazy, that's or is she crazy. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I'm thinking of it in, in terms of like, in LGBTQ plus history, like I, I don't personally know anything. Else. She's a gay icon okay. in a lot of ways. So okay. for, yeah, like how it really, and she does a lot of activism for gay community. But other than that, she, as far as I know, maybe she's queer. I don't know enough about her to know that. I don't follow her or anything like that. But as somebody who's cis and hetero, while I might also maybe think, okay, she, her activism, she's at least incredibly she's an incredibly strong ally mm -hmm. I, I don't I haven't seen her I, I don't see her as a as an LGBTQ plus like somebody who is part of that community other than that's my point that's my point is lady if Lady Gaga wasn't Lady Gaga or you're saying if there was some white woman who was just acting in the way that Lady Gaga acts is that action itself courage right. or is it just going to be seen as some sort of banal insanity that's happening over there that and i think it depends on the situation that she's in if she's just an adult that's wandering around the streets wearing crazy shit, is that courage i don't think so if she's a teenager who's trying to express herself going to school wearing that sort of shit. I think there's a little bit of both. I think it's how many and... feel about her clothes, <laughs> specifically the meat dress. So. I'm not a fan of most of her sense of fashion. I'll say that, but in case you couldn't discern that from what I've been saying, but but I do appreciate her. I definitely appreciate her and her allyship. I do too, and and I'm not dogging Lady Gaga. What I'm dogging actually is her ability to be able to do that and people go, mm -hmm. oh, look, she's she's so different. She's an ally. She's a blah, blah, blah. And then they look at you and me, Kelly, and they go, wow, you're so strong to be able to live openly in your, like, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten that since I was 19. And I'm like, when I hit probably about 30, I was like, fuck you all. I mm -hmm. just, I want to do what that lady did, which is watch Buffy all day. Like mm -hmm. I have literally done nothing except for say he, when, it, when I'm talking about who mm -hmm. I'm, that is literally all I've done. Like, I haven't done anything else. I'm just not being quiet about who I'm dating. Like, yeah. that to me is not courageous. Why are you saying that I'm courageous? Because I'm, I have never considered myself courageous. Now, in battling depression and suicidal thoughts, I'll give myself credit there and say, yes, I'm courageous. But being open since 19, it, it irritates me. It actually irritates me that people are like, you're courageous. And no, I'm courageous in the fact that I live, despite the fact that I wanted to take my life for most of my life. Yeah. And I think that the whole idea of framing that sort of thing as courageous, again, is just another way to reinforce the otherness of it and to be able to say that, oh, look at you living that other life that <laughs> that none of us are going to give you any room to do and you're so strong you do it anyway Fuck you know you. what giving my goddamn rights as as a cis hetero woman on this like nobody's inviting me to secret parties 
So <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm really kidding. But that's to what you're saying, Chad, that's what I mean. Like there, there is that level of appreciating. And I specifically talk about the trans community in this because in my limited time kind of learning LGBTQ plus history and more current events, I, I constantly ask myself, like, how can I do better? What can I do? What can I be doing that isn't putting on a meat dress, right? What can I possibly do that would help without any of the, I don't know, that, yeah. no, I meant like that false sense of allyship, right? Like, I, I think that's a thing. Performative too. allyship. The, yeah, performative allyship. I should know that. And I, yeah, it totally right. escaped my mind. What can I be doing that's going to help? That's actually going to put forth value towards the effort for a community as a whole, for no other interest than this should have been done a long time ago. And I look at the trans community right now, and I hear that a lot when I hear a lot of people who are allies talk about, oh, they're so courageous. And I'm like, shit, dude, can they just be human? Can, can people just exist? And so I'm hearing you say that, and I, I understand where you're coming from. And it, so again, it reminds me, I, I can't tell you, the, the reason I talked about mediocrity being the place where people are like, oh, that's so courageous, because I admit where I was, I've been mediocre in my understanding of different communities. To say that it's courageous to do something that is who you are, that you do every day, that you is part of just your existence, for me to ever think that's courageous shows just how incredibly messed up this whole idea of norm is. I want to flip that real quick and say, it does take courage to do that every single day. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's know that the norm is this and you do this and you do it every single day. There is courage in that. But for someone else to come to me and tell me like what you were saying, Kelly, Mm -hmm. here I am. I'm just sitting watching Buffy and (laughs) you're like, you're my inspiration. I'm like, oh, great. So we can watch Buffy together. Is that what you're talking about? That is that would be really courageous. All if right. I could inspire you to watch Buffy every single day. I scratched the birthday card I was going to send you. <laughs> but it, so it, there's that duality of it. And I get what you're saying where there's the mediocrity of saying, you're just living your life. I don't want to be your inspiration. I want to be noted for I'm living against the grain. I'm being who I am. And there's a certain courage in that. But at the same time, I'm not lighting this world on fire. I'm not like throwing coffee in people's faces and starting a riot like that. that, I'm not doing that. I'm just trying not to get in a fight while I'm having road rage on 35. That's (laughs) I'm keeping it simple because I just want to get back and watch some more Buffy. Y'all are keeping me from that. So that's... Do you see where the real anger is? <laughs> exactly. My burning rage is y'all are keeping me from watching Buffy. But but like there's a duality in it because I get that this world keeps saying over and over. So any of our listeners who are struggling with this, I totally get it. Like I want you to get there's there is like I understand that there is a world that says you should be you, whoever you is. And at the same time, that same world is saying, what the fuck are you doing being you? Mm-hmm. You isn't fitting what this needs. To, there's a role that you need to be playing and you ain't playing. Yeah. So this, yeah. this just shows my my finesse, my sophistication when it comes to watching movies. But, but it reminds me of the scene from How to Train Your Dragon. 
-hmm. where where the son tells the dad the dad says you just change this about you and you'll be fine and the kid goes you just gestured to all of me it's (laughs) it's very it's it, it is you're being told we are told communally we are told that there's this beauty there's this this whole idea of being like special and different and unique and it's valued and then what just not like that just not that way if you could just change that but then by doing that you change all of you Mm -hmm. and and I I get it I and I you're right and it is both and it is very much like you can be somebody who lives that kind of duality where you're just like fuck I don't want to be courageous to somebody else and acknowledge that you are doing something every day that is courageous it, it, intrinsically, right? Like just, it is who you are. This, it's not, it is not you necessarily. That's, it's not a your fault thing. It's right. just the society has built that history over time. And, and because again, this, because we are talking about public history in this podcast, I did have a couple of questions to ask you, Kelly, about public sure. history. Why are you bring it back to what we're supposed to be talking about? I, I know. I'm disappointed. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but but I'm curious, given because it's interesting to, about Cooper's Cooper Donuts and Compton's Cafeteria. Like these are his these are sites of history, right? That's not to say that they are currently historical sites, especially as we talked about earlier with Cooper Donuts not possibly being right. In but existence. Compton's is there is a marker in uh, the Tenderloin District for oh, Compton's right. Cafeteria. Yes. It was like six or seven years ago, it was made a historical site. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because I was been Google mapping as I've been listening. Mm-hmm. And I realized I actually walked past that intersection that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And at the time there wasn't historical marker, but it's interesting. Like it's another one of those damn it moments. Have I knew what I, where I was, mm-hmm. right? If I was waiting for the light to change, could I have appreciated that moment better? And I, I guess I'm, I was curious at the beginning and maybe you can speak to this. Maybe you, you don't have that right now, but are there historic sites that you would revive if you could like Cooper Donuts or are there other historic sites related to LGBTQ plus history before Stonewall that you were like, it doesn't exist. I could, if I were backed to do this, I would want to make this uh, a deliberate historic site. I, yeah, actually I would say there are because San Francisco has changed so much over the last like 30 or so years. It had changed a lot when I arrived here. It originally, it's seen as such a LGBTQ place. And it's also now this sort of tech wonderland, if you want to call it that, where so many people here work in technology and the technological booms and busts that have come through San Francisco have really changed who can afford to live in this town. And originally, this was very much a place for both lesbians and gay men and transgender people and any number of people lived here. But as uh, technology took over, that really changed who could afford to live here. So a lot of the lesbian history of this town has disappeared. And a lot of lesbians have moved out of San Francisco and into the East Bay. So Valencia used to be this corridor of lesbian bars and and bathhouses and things like that. And those have disappeared. 
they, some of them were really important to the history of lesbians in San Francisco, but they can't afford to be here anymore. I would love to see some of that come back and to feel like this is not just a gay man's town, but that lesbians actually do still live here and we have a history here and it'd be nice to see a little bit of it. There are some bars and some, there was this really lovely bathhouse that you could go to and get a massage and to spend time in a sauna or just sit in the jacuzzis and all of that and just relax. It was really a wonderful place and that place is gone. So, you know, those kinds of things I would some friends of mine used to run lesbian bookstores and, and now they can't afford to live here anymore. They're in the East Bay and their stores are closed and money dictates a lot of historical things and whether they can survive. No, that's Chad's like really nodding his head enthusiastically. And it is, it's really true, especially right now we're still dealing with COVID and that alone shook up everything that we have understood in this or, or the way that the, the way that life has worked in the United States for the past mm-hmm. several decades. But yeah, that's, it, it's interesting, again, because I I don't have enough knowledge of this history to make any judgments at all. So for you to say that there's a lesbian history to San Francisco that has been disappearing, that is a very, very much in need of the historical attention to preservation physically, right? Like historical sites and such. I I find surprising just because I don't know what I don't know. And man, I don't know a lot. (laughs) Like this conversation has been incredibly enlightening just for San Francisco too, right? This is, we've just been discussing a couple of things regarding California that this is the kind of history that exists all corners in all different places, in all different parts of, you know, this country in many states and many cities. And it's just how much more, I, I always grieve what's been lost. I always grieve that. I, I don't know if that's just because I'm an overly sentimental or that's just part of the terrain of being a historian. Like you just learn grief of, of losing what was not preserved. And there's also just the idea that um, not preserving things, it's so easy then to, to take a group of people out of some place just by not preserving their history. To be able to say, oh, maybe they actually weren't here. Maybe this town was always like this. Those oftentimes, the loss of the history is a very deliberate move by a particular group. It's not just, oh, whoops, (laughs) that's gone. Oh, can't remember that one. It's a very deliberate move to be able to say, we don't need to acknowledge you. And we don't need to look at your rights as being important or your, you as a person as being important. Like just, what was it yesterday or a couple of days ago or whatever they, I think it was the tape of Rick Santorum uh-huh. that came out where he was talking about how there is no native history in U.S. history and U.S. culture. And there was nothing here before we got here. And all I could think was, are you that stupid? And I know he's completely ignorant, but I also know that this is probably a mixture of ignorance and deliberate, deliberate choice of words and deliberate choice of thought in that. Yeah. The, the whole time you've been saying that, I'm like, oh, it's like, yeah. I'm like super yeah. pissed about that. And yeah, it's, you're right. It, you know, there's that, that deliberateness in of erasure, mm. the conscious choices that are made and the subsequent 
unconscious choices that are perpetuated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you don't know your own history and other people have taken that history out of public history, and so therefore the kids that are coming up don't know that history and may feel like they have no history at all because it's lost, lost in a deliberate way. And you're, I mean, that in itself is indoctrination, right? Because you're then teaching them only the things that you want them to know, not all the stuff that's there. And, and for, for me, just a lot of the stuff that I try to do as far as just like I do a lot of DNI work through my work. And for me to bring in very specific people and to talk to the employees at the company I work with to make sure that these sort of unspoken histories are there, that people understand that these fights that we're having are not coming out of nowhere. There is so much that led us to this point and so much that has directed us to this point that these fights are unavoidable at this point. Like we have to make it a fight or we won't exist anymore. I, ha- I have questions. I can go all day, but it is also you I questions? 430. <laughs> so, okay. I had, I had one other question that I did want to ask and the way that lgbtq plus public history like the the scholarship right now both academic and like in the field are you would do you would you have any suggestions of improve i I know that people can constantly give suggestions for improvement but do you think it's it's going in a right like in it not in the right but in a, a productive direction right now does it need more push does it is it is there lacking what do you think about I think that there is right now a real need to continue the work of just trying to write down our own history and that we need to have people who are willing to go out there and talk to the elders in the community and see what they're doing and what they have done and what they remember. And oral histories, I think, are important for any group because there's just like with the stuff we're talking about today, there's so much stuff that's not written down that you have to actually have conversations with people to get those stories because they're nowhere. And if you're not talking to them, then nobody's going to know them. And people don't tend to, or at least most people don't tend to write down their own stories. There are a few people who journal every day, but they're, <laughs> that's not the norm really. And when you're journaling, you're not sitting there going, well, I had a historic moment today. <laughs> I was part of a riot. I don't think anybody's going to remember it. So I'm going to write it down. That doesn't happen. Man, that's genius. Yeah. I was talking to to a friend yesterday and she was saying, have you ever thought of writing a book about, about what happened in your life when you were growing up? Because I tend to have all of these just absolutely ridiculous stories about things. And I've never thought of them as being worthy of writing in a book. I just, for me, it was like, yeah, a lot of stupid shit's happened to me. <laughs> okay. You know, it's like, I'm not going to sit there and go, let me see if somebody will read it. No, it's not. But when you have other people that suddenly are like, have you ever thought of writing a book? You've got some crazy shit that happened to you. Then, then you start to think, oh, maybe, maybe there are some things that don't happen to other people. I just think my life is typical of a lot of lives and Therefore, why would anybody be interested in writing about it? And, but when you talk to other people and realize, no, (laughs) 
everybody's life is very different. And you may think that somebody else's life is more interesting than yours, but that doesn't necessarily hold in the reverse. They may look at your life and go, what the fuck happened to you? And, and want you to tell them stories. And, and so for me, when I'm thinking about it and thinking about the lives of young LGBTQ people that are growing up, I want them to have their history and to know that they're not alone and to know that other people have fought to get them to a point where they can like that. Oh God, what is the name of that little girl who was just in front of the Texas Senate talking about her life as a trans kid and that she shouldn't have to be there talking about that to them. Her life is in danger and the life of her family is in danger. And, and there are people who have come before her who have tried to make that not have to be the case for her. And yet here she is having to say, please don't make me just my life illegal and my family's life hell and all of these different things. She needs to know that there are people that she can count on who have been in this fight for a long time and are willing to back her up. And without that history, she won't know that. And that's one of the things that we talked about, not our last episode, but the episode before that, when we were setting up LGBTQ history, that part of the issue with LGBTQ history is you do have this disparity between the generations, right? Again, because everything is so over-sexualized, you really don't want, quote unquote, you don't want your teenage son hanging out with this 90-year-old dude, even though the 90-year-old dude has ED and not much of a memory and everything that he's talking about is history and allows for this kid to take it all in, soak it in, recognize that this isn't, I can't even imagine what that would be like, how people talk to, talk about their grandparents and like what their grandparents did and these close relationships. I can't even imagine that because I'm like, I had no one in my small Midwestern town who one, I thought was even gay, even in my high school, which was a fairly large high school. We, it just wasn't a thing. And I can't even like the history I did was the history I looked for, not Mm -hmm the history I sat down and listened to. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Which is it mm-hmm. gives you definite, like it's, there's a, unlike other marginalized communities, the LGBTQ community doesn't have that generational link. Mm-hmm. It, it's broken from generation to generation it, it, deliberately, right? Like in many cases, because it needed to be, we couldn't hang out together, but in other ways, because it's frowned upon, because we shouldn't be hanging out together because it's inappropriate or whatever. So I think that's really interesting. You don't get that oral history aspect, that closeness to the, the history that is yours. You have to actually go seek it. And that's if you're willing to. Yeah. Right. California has just passed a law saying that LGBTQ history will be part of general history courses. So you know, my question in that is, <laughs> what history are we going to teach? <laughs> you know, like whose history is going to be put in those textbooks? Are we going to do it the way that we've done all other history textbooks, where it's essentially white men that their history is there? Or <clears throat> are we going to actually include stories of marginalized people and how they were marginalized and the consequences of that marginalization. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. And along with that, though, I think, and this is one of the things that always gets me is that 
so much of our history, like we've been talking about, is in some ways unreliable or unclear because of the way it had to be documented. And like with, like with Stonewall, let's say, if you look at Stonewall and everybody's who threw the first brick, first of all, was there a brick thrown? That is not clear. And if there was a brick, where the hell did that come from? And there are a lot of different people who say that Marsha threw the first brick. And Marsha and people who have gone to talk to her about Stonewall, she was like, I wasn't there. I didn't get there till two in the morning. That thing started at nine or whatever. She was there after it had already been going. And she would say that freely. And so then people said, maybe it was Sylvia who threw it. And Sylvia also, nope, I wasn't there when it started. And so then there are a lot of people who actually said that it was one of the lesbians who was a bouncer at the bar. And which I just love that just... They had a lesbian bouncer. <laughs> and most of the time, she said that essentially how it started was that she was being harassed by cops, like severely harassed by cops and inside the bar. And she just shouted to other people, why are you letting this happen? And then that was what started it. But then there were other times and she was like, no, it wasn't me. And so who knows exactly right now how this thing started. And then you have things like that God awful movie that came out a little bit ago on Stonewall, where apparently in order to make it quote unquote accessible to the general public, the instigator of the Stonewall riot was a white guy. And that was one of those words. No, dude, there really weren't that many white guys that were there. It was a trashy dive bar run by the mob. And even though it was a place where LGBTQ people could congregate, there were other nicer places. <laughs> and so you're probably not going to get a whole lot of white guys who have access to money congregating in this dump that overcharged you for drinks that were mostly water. So that is just ridiculous. But the people who had the potential to see that movie and then believe that to be the case, that fucks up our history. If we're going to actually have our history out there, it needs to be as close to correct as we can get it. And I know that a lot of the things that people want to believe about that night, because it's inspirational and because it brings in marginalized groups, doesn't mean that's how we can write a history. A history needs to be as close to real as it can be. And that may mean having several different versions of it because different groups of people are going to see it differently, of course. But it doesn't mean falsifying how it started or who instigated it or any of these types of things and then putting it out there as this is it. And I can still see it as an inspirational thing and be like, wow, wouldn't that be amazing if and yay for all the people that took part in it, not saying they weren't there taking part in it. We can't put things out there that aren't true and then expect other people to be truthful about their things. Mm-hmm. That's really well put. Yeah. Also, I am completely one of those people that was like Marsh B. Johnson. And now hearing y'all was like, oh. Yeah. It's <laughs> sad, isn't it? Because you just want that. 
it's so inspirational. And yet at the same time, like that, that feeling that kicked in for me made me realize Marsha's still inspirational, right? Absolutely. And Stonewall is still a pivotal moment with an incredible yeah. history and, and an inspiration eventually in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So why should I get hung up on that? Like me, especially me, I think as a, as a cis and hetero woman, why should I get hung up that this wasn't this narrative that I had heard and believed and even now are like, oh, no, like that's not that the, the feeling, the feeling should be both. And that's really cool. And that's mm -hmm. really awesome. And that is, that is even more enriching to the fact for, for what I already don't know. So for, for what I'm learning. So yeah, I had a lot of emotions. <laughs> yeah, talking, that's like, like a whole oh. arc. You yeah. had a whole arc there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm still lost in there. So. But I think that's what's really interesting is knowing how attached we get to our history mm -hmm. or to a history. And that history doesn't have to be right. So it's very much like science. Like I saw this meme that said science isn't wrong because they did more research and realized, and history is the same thing. History is not wrong because we found this document that rearranged what we have previously thought. Like mm -hmm. thought is not necessarily wrong. It's just not right now. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah. 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 And if we don't have the whole story, we don't have the whole story till we have it. Yeah. And anybody and who tries the whole story and anybody who tries to sell you on this idea that there's a definitive history is trying to sell you something that is not history. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But that's what I think is really interesting is what you were talking about, finding out that the history you knew wasn't it. And then that very quickly, because you're a historian, you're trained to be like, oh, okay, new facts. But at the same time, like the quick grieving that you had that it wasn't Marsha P. Johnson, right? So that still attachment to this new history or the old history when you find out the new history. Mm -hmm. and to me, that strikes with a lot of American history when I hear people say, why didn't we learn this in high school? You didn't learn it in high school because one, high schools aren't allowed to teach the history. That sounds really bad. And I'm not dogging high schools necessarily. I could be, I can go on a whole rant, but there's one, not enough time. And two, there's a whole other reason you're learning high school history, right? Like, mm -hmm. It's not just about your high school or it's not just about history. It's about in high school, part of what you're doing when you're learning that history is to learn to love the United States. That's right. what, because so they'll never get rid of history in high school because you got to have cute little patriots coming out going, yay, America. But yeah. then you have these that's, other people. That's exactly what they're doing, by the way. <laughs> oh, I'm It sorry. is. I've seen them. <laughs> sorry. But the other thing too is what came up for me when you were doing that little piece right there, and I don't mean like doing it like it was, mm -hmm. but when you were going through all of that, is it also reminded me of people who think of the South and Southern history and the United States Civil War and what does that mean? And the inability to actually recognize that when you're talking about states' rights, you're talking about states' rights to own people and essentially making up that history or one, holding on to a history that had been a narrative for a very long time for a particular purpose and with new information, not releasing that. So it's, this, it's the same idea. And that movie, I agree with you, it was a horrible movie, re-identifying and saying, no, it's just whitenizing something else. Just mm -hmm. a, It's whitenizing queer history, if you will. And there's enough whitenizing in history that we don't need to whitenize queer history. Like- mm -hmm. Queer history that you can see enough whiteization in 
queer history enough. Like you don't need to go out of your way to make it happen. Mm-hmm. So I, I, it's just very interesting. Like all of that kind of came up when you were talking about it. Cause I'm like that, but that's what people do, right? Like they no, this is history. Even though we have a new document mm-hmm. that's valid, right? We know, or this new person that's, oh yeah, I remember that. I've been in a coma for the last 40 years. Right. So he was able to ask me and now I can be like, no, I have a clear memory. Clearly I'm making shit up at this point, but <laughs> you get what I'm saying. There's new components that get added, new sources, new ways mm-hmm. of looking at things, new technology to bring a story more to life in by story and history, right? Because it's mm-hmm. really a story. So whose is it? How is it? And how is it being told? And I, right. I agree with you, that's coming back to what we were talking about before. That's also a negative as far as the LGBTQ community, because we had to be in history had to be pushed down into secret so mm-hmm. it's writing something down about our history is a bit an anathema to the whole or anathema however you pronounce that word to the whole idea of being secret and being closeted but you're not going to write it down and you're not going to tell people about it and you're not going to journal and be like i was at a riot today right right like you're- that's the only way i'm going to journal from now on <laughs> like as I if was you're going to do that though you have to have a big quill pen and all of that mandatory yeah and the inkwell too uh, gotta gay it up mm-hmm. as much as possible yeah. cute little jaunty hat with the- yes yeah my tricorn <laughs> with the feather going across yeah your, on- your laser uh yeah. with your on this uh- fortuitous day <laughs> yeah i see it <laughs> But I think that's that all of that is part of history. And, and when it comes to LBG, LGBTQ history, and when we talk about public history, there's just, it's the stories that we get told that mm-hmm. become public history. There's very few places that you can go and see it. Even Stonewall, you can see the outside of Stonewall, but you, mm-hmm. you go in, that's not Stonewall anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's very interesting because of all the marginalized communities that we really are that one that just doesn't really have anything because, and that's, a, I'm not saying it's good or bad, better or worse. It's just, it's harder to get to the source because you're finding something, the farther back you go, the less likely you are to find something because the whole point was that you weren't telling anybody. Yeah. You weren't telling anybody and your version of it wouldn't have been considered valid anyway. And you're, you're not the one who's allowed to say what that history is, because history is all about who is telling the story, the point of view that they're coming from, what are they supporting in telling the story? Is that group's history considered valid and the validity is decided on by a group that's not them. So if we're looking at LGBTQ history, hetero history and cis history are the main viewpoints of history. LGBTQ history is foreign and othered and not respected and not believed. If you're looking at U.S. history, then you're looking at it from a white viewpoint and most likely a male viewpoint because that's what's written down. And if you're thinking about Mexican-American history or Black American history or any of those things, then are those really valid viewpoints? Not as far as U.S. history is concerned. So, you know, all of those stories are invalidated and othered and not believed. And the history that we're putting out there as U.S. history is just a tiny fragment 
of what really has happened in this country. And everybody else's history is apparently invalid as far as the viewpoint of our country goes. So much so that to the extent that when I was a kid and in, in like whether it was history class or social studies or whatever, I actually just started thinking, wow, women just don't do anything, do we? There's my thought for a very long time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> We're just apparently sitting around with our long nails and our yeah. um, can't breathe and just sitting there trying not to get tan that's what we're doing and not wiping our butts yeah yeah no having somebody else wipe your butt for you that's only if you have money i yes only if you have money i quite the thing that, that i always go back to with this idea of not getting tan that horrible mel gibson movie the patriots did you guys see that yeah, yeah, we've referenced it in many episodes. Okay, so the part when they're on Gullah Island and they and Mel Gibson comes back and uh, finds what is it his sister in law or his wife or whoever the fuck the woman was, and his she had been she has been on this island for however many months and supposedly working because when he comes back she's got like a bushel of something in her hands or something like that, and all I could think was I think she's more pale than she was when she got there. Who has been doing her work for her? Everybody in that little island. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Essentially. I was like, that bitch is so pale. <laughs> what is happening here? She is out in the middle of an island out, you know, on the southern coast of the United States. There is a lot of sun in this shot and she is so pale. Yep. I, I don't know how it works for non-melanated people. So... <laughs> Not like that. (laughs) I'll just say that. I go outdoors for 10 minutes and I'm starting to get brown. I was going to say, at at the very least, I understood that there's a lobster color somewhere in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I usually go from red to brown, actually. I should have been more specific. She probably should have either been peeling, which is not attractive. No. uh, on any, I don't care how good looking you are. No, and I think that all of the, the runaway slaves on that island would not have offered her whatever lotion they had made Mm-mm. because they would have been like, that white bitch can peel. Like an orange. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, no, totally get you. And I, there, there is something within that history. And I, th- I think it's very, public history, I think is really interesting because as we've been moving through these different episodes, we've been noticing like the Patriot, right? You wouldn't expect a movie to be public history. And yet it can be Braveheart. That one gets referenced a lot. In oh God, it's so awful. <laughs> because, right. I look at it as historical fantasy. It is not historical in any shape right. or way, but I'll still watch it because it's enjoyable. I just have to detach myself. Same thing with the Elizabethan movies with Kate Blanchett. Again, Kate, if you're listening, love you, darling. You're awesome. You're great. You were even great as Elizabeth. Those movies bit hard as far as historical accuracy. So again, I have to separate myself, especially the second one, man. Oof, so much wrong with this movie. <laughs> I just bypassed the second one. <laughs> oh, I now realize I don't need to waste my time on these. Okay. I didn't spend money on it, I don't believe. That's good. And if I did, it was Michael's. Um, (laughs) That's not a bad thing. Spend his money. (laughs) Um, Sorry. Michael, if you're listening, not sorry. But anyway, so I think like 
looking at movies this way, right? So that's why it's so important for me when we're talking about LGBTQ history, because that is history in some shape, way, or form for the public, right? It becomes history. And like you said, Kelly, if we're going to do it, can we make it as close to accurate as possible? Because people are going to see that as history because there's no other kind of history. It's not written down. And it's hard to, people aren't going to want to listen to or read oral histories as fun as I think they are. I'm a total nerd. And so most people aren't going to be like, that sounds really fun listening to this guy ramble on about this one moment in time. About a city council meeting. (laughs) That was great. Yeah. That's what it takes to be a historian and a researcher, like those things. And I, I, if he he starts off with on this fortuitous day (laughs) at the city council, automatically brings people in. Yes, boom, (laughs) right there. That is the spoken version of a feather quill. That's true. Mm -hmm. That should hint at there's probably a riot coming. (laughs) I think so. I think we're on to something. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it is important for me to, when we see those movies and not like the movies, oh shoot, I can't think of it now. I can see the cover of it and it's three drag queens and they're on a bus and they're going across. Priscilla, a... Queen of the Desert. Yes, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. How did I forget that? Oh, God. I don't know. So iconic. Your gay girl uh, gone. <laughs> right? That was gone a long time ago. Let's just... <laughs> This is just a reason to not give it back. Like the council is listening and going, oof, okay. Yeah. And another year without yeah. his card. Yeah. Um, Elton John leads that council. Nice. nice. <laughs> well done. But I, I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important for me when we're talking about these historical moments and we're going to film them. We're going to put it in film. We're going to send it out. Let's make it as, like you said, as close to reality as we can possibly make it and I understand that it's a film it's if it's not a documentary clearly it's not about the full history but people are going to look at that and they're going to internalize it as that is history mm-hmm. and I, it, with no other history being around nothing written nothing being taught that makes it difficult for me because I'm like but that's not history mm-hmm. that's not LGBTQ history that's some other fantasy world history in a parallel universe that doesn't exist in the United States. It's not like we're sitting here saying that Harvey Milk wasn't shot or something like that. That <laughs> those They're not doing something as egregious as that, but it's the subtle changes that like making, and I don't know if you can truly call this subtle, but making the, the main protagonist of the Stonewall thing be a white guy is just absurd. It's just ridiculous. And so to to have the gist of the history be correct, the majority of it be correct, and and not be whitewashed or not be made to fit into straight world. If you're making a fiction film, then yes, some of it will be fictionalized, but it doesn't have to be a lie. It can be things that are meant to take a bunch of people and make them into one character because the things that they did were important, but it was just like, you did this one thing and this person did that one thing and blah, blah, blah. So if we just put them together, then we can compact that. And it's not a 15 hour long movie. It's a two hour thing that people can sit through. And yet the reality is still there. Um, You mean don't make Genghis Khan, John Wayne? Yeah, don't make him John Wayne. Don't make him. That's another one we've referenced. The guy from Goodwill Hunting who played a Chinese guy. Oh my goodness. Matt Damon. Wait, he played a, oh, 
in the, the wall, I think. Yeah. yeah. And then of course, yeah, Last Samurai. And all of it. He's not supposed to be a Chinese guy, but I will say after watching that movie, it is, there's a whole other reason to hate that movie. Okay. Uh, then let's go with Scarlett Johansson instead, who was supposed to be a Japanese character. There are plenty of yeah. white people we can roll through in yeah. this type of scenario. Emma Stone. Yeah. 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 Oh, oh uh, Johnny Depp as Tonto. Oh my God. Yeah. Which for everyone who hasn't watched it, please do not watch Lone Ranger. There are not a lot of shows or movies I'm going to tell you not to watch. That's going to be one of them. <laughs> like just, just straight up. There is no reason to watch that movie. If you haven't already seen it to waste your time and money, don't watch it. Like, it's just, it's not worth seeing Johnny Depp play Tonto. Like, it's just, it just isn't. <laughs> and I don't care how much you like Johnny Depp. Like, it, he, he doesn't save it. But yeah, like, it's the, and I agree with you, it's those types of things. We keep coming back to John Wayne as Genghis Khan a lot because for people who don't understand what we're talking about with LGBTQ history or being marginal in a marginalized community watching a movie about your history knowing that history and seeing a white person whatever or it's supposed to be a woman when it's actually or it was supposed to be a, a woman and it's actually a man portraying that or mm -hmm. whatever it is right that's the part that just gets us so riled up because that's such an easy fix like mm -hmm. it, if that dude, that white dude who's supposed to be the protagonist of the whole Stonewall riot, if he's a main person in the story, I haven't even watched it because I, I refuse, but if he's our protagonist throughout the whole entire movie, then he can be there. I'm fine with him being there because it's fictionalized. Mm -hmm. Throw the white dude in there, whatever. Come up with a horrible reason for why he's there. They did that with Great Wall with Matt Damon. So mm -hmm. they can do it for some gay dude in one of the few gay places that he can hang out. Closing statements, Maria. Okay. Oh, okay, I'll start. I, I, I just, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot that the, the whole process of learning histories that aren't part of your intersections is always like this constant learning. And I really, I, I very much appreciate Kelly that you taking the time to speak on these really important historical moments before Stonewall, because as somebody who was already learning a little bit about Stonewall, now I have more history to go back, even if it's 10 years. And often we use the phrase, even if, as if like that's, I, I, but there's so much richness like to be given 10 more years to be able to look into and learn from and add that and incorporate that to personal knowledge. And hopefully that'll be handy and I will have some sense of doing some justice to this history if I ever get asked if I know something. So I, I find this kind of conversation very valuable and it's fascinating. It is. It's incredibly, it's very, the thing about history for me is it's very humanizing how many times these similar conflicts, struggles, ideas, emotions, the things that, that move people to do history, to, to do something that then becomes a historical event at a historical site. It, it reminds me like, we're not that incredibly different, right? Like it's just the way this time it came out in history is different and it has to be, it had to be different. The, the people who were part of this have a different lived experience. And yet we are all very much still experiencing certain histories and struggles in very similar ways. And it helps appreciate uh, a place and a people and a community and 
individual acts. And, and we talked a lot about courage. And it, it, it's a reminder that it, that it is, it does take courageous things, events, and it takes courageous people to push the way that we live forward. And then the way that when, so that when we are reflecting back and when we look at it as history, that we also should do that same sense of justice to the story, right? If, if, if there was this push forward or not forward, but if there was this moment where somebody just broke because they've been pushed to the limit, the very, very least we can do as historians and really as people in this society is to do our best to truly be accurate to the history of an event and a, and a community. Those are my final thoughts. They're all over the place of it. It's all right. Oh, it's oh. <laughs> like, huh? What? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Great. Perfect final thoughts. And <laughs> Thank you. Yep. That sums me up. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, I thank you for doing a show on LGBTQ history and for having this discussion on some little known parts of our history and how that fits into just the wider scheme of public history and the reclaiming of our history and just acknowledging that it's there and making sure that there are places that we can speak about it because that's really one of the things that just legitimizes people in the public consciousness, being able to have a place to talk about your history and show people that, yeah, hey, we've been here for a long time and we've been fighting for these things for a long time. This didn't come out of nowhere. Thank you for making a space for that. And it was just lovely to meet you, Maria. And Chad, it's always lovely to chat with you. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so just thank you for that. I hope we can have you back too, so that we can in the future have conversations, other conversations, sure. not just regarding LGBTQ plus history, but maybe we can do a movie uh, where Chad and I've been talking about dismantling the Patriot as part of our, our podcast. Oh my God, I would be all over that. <laughs> it is so awful. Oh my God, I would be so all over that. I want to say thank you so much, Kelly, for accepting and being here, for enlightening not just Maria and I, but the people who are listening to something that really isn't known, very similar to Stonewall, but in a completely part of the different, a completely different part of the country, opposite coast, 10 years earlier, right? I, like you said, I think it's really important that we shine a light on these and in these little nooks of unknown places that have some rich history. And I think that you brought that to light for us and became part of, and that's one of the things I think is really great about this podcast is that just by talking about it here, we become part of public history, right? So bringing up Stonewall, there's a place that you can go. It's not the inside, but you can see the outside. And the historical marker for Compton Cafeteria as well in San Francisco. So I think it's, it's really interesting those nooks and crannies and in history and the stories that help illuminate, broaden, and expand what that history is, right? It's the small stuff that can make the bigger picture look even bigger or more significant. So thank you for doing that. I think you did a great job and we're super happy that you're here and we would definitely love to be able to work with you again. Awesome. Yeah, I will bring my years of living in Virginia and going to all of the different just historical sites there to the Patriots. 
very happily. Cannot wait. Yes. Oh, that'll be that'll be perfect. So thank you for being here. It was a really long recording. We haven't had one of these in quite some time. We really do appreciate you being here. It, it, I know that part of the reason it went so long is because you're just so fun. And that's exactly what I was expecting. I appreciate that. Thank you. So my apologies for taking up more of your day than what you probably thought. That's um, all right. But thank you very much for being here. We had a blast. It was fun. And you are going to get tons of kudos when we release. Oh, how are you going to ship those? <laughs> I like it. I like I don't know. I'll figure it out. <laughs> Chocolate chip ones. Yes. Right. Perfect. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye. See you later.